0: Today's episode is with Trey Ford. Trey has an interesting background in information security, having worked as a consultant, auditor, eventually moving into managed vulnerability scanning at YAT, running the Black Hat Security Conference, and so much more. We spent a lot of time talking about what makes for a good CISO, what kinds of things they should be doing from his vantage point, having worked with many of them at a PE firm. We also discussed the process of handling incident response and some personal stories about his journey as a pilot. And now, here's my conversation with Trey Ford. So, okay, I have been trying to figure out, I've been racking my brain. When did you and I first meet? It was like 2007, 8?
1: I'm trying to recall. So, you were
0: definitely at White Hat.
1: Definitely at White Hat. Um, I believe I was on crutches. Um, <laughs> laughably, I had twisted my <laughs> ankle at an ultimate Frisbee thing. I think we met uh, some time in proximity to. Was it OWASP, AppSec USA? It was on the uh, San Jose eBay campus. At bare minimum, we met there for sure, if not before.
0: I feel like it's gotta have been before. Because there was a brief time that I was a reseller for White Hat. I feel like I met you through that somehow. I
1: had bounced through town several times, I think. Ryan had brought us out. I'm pretty sure we crossed paths.
0: Yeah. So what does that make it like for oh, something like that? 14 years, 15, 16 years, it was 07, 16, Yeah. 17 years, 17 years. ish. It's a long time. Wow. I actually just noticed, um, I think it was Jeremiah who brought it up to me. He's like, I've been doing security longer than I've been doing anything else. Like even, you know, just anything like, yeah, I've been doing it longer than I've been not doing it. I'm like, that's kind of a weird way to phrase it, but I think it's right. I think you're up there too, my friend. You're getting real close <laughs> if you're not already there. Yeah. So why don't you start me uh, and the audience off? I don't think a lot of people know you outside of the direct infosec world. Like, what's your uh, what's your background? How'd you get into information security?
1: Man, I, I stumbled into it. I feel like my whole career was stepping <laughs> in people taking impossible bets on me. Um, I guess the whistle-stop tour, um, I started off, I built a computer, I think, in 93 and somewhere in proximity to that, I was sacking groceries at the grocery store. So I was mm-hmm. a kid. And uh, my shift manager was getting yelled at. So this is in the age of like garage ISPs. So if, like if everyone had garage ISPs. Remember computer user and buying your parts out and then finding BBSs. Some lady's yelling at my shift manager about not being able to get her email. So I grab a paper bag right down on the back of it. Like here's, it. remember how you had to change the setting in Outlook Express for send and receive? It was not the default setting. So you could authenticate. I got started back then. Uh, he hired me to, I rode my bicycle or my hometown uh, uh, in the North side of Kansas city, Missouri, setting people up on their internet connections and providing tech support. So, um, I've been doing this since 93 on uh, a bike, on a bicycle.
0: You were literally a I was bike old... messenger, but for the internet. Yeah. Wow. I've never heard of such a thing.
1: Yeah. Well, I, it just sort of happened. He was a garage ISP guy. He worked as shift manager at a grocery store, Hy-Vee. Up Cause in Kansas normally city.
0: you call yeah. in and yeah,
1: just... no, no, no. Like it was, it was a really <laughs> small operation, small town, North side of Kansas city in a suburb. Um, so from there uh did that for a number of years um went to work for uh, a security company home security company uh adt security um you show up for your first interview as was a call center uh up there by the airport by kci and uh i had read we're from the bbs era so i had found and read all the manuals for all the alarm systems and so i show up for an interview for a call center and i'm like well when do we do the tech part And i'm like what are you talking about Fast forward, uh, I did inbound, outbound, and then got pulled into tech support, like in the first couple of weeks on the job. Were you
0: doing sales when you started?
1: No, it was just, it was, uh, alarm handling. So when uh, you walk in and you accidentally set off the alarm, you call the alarm company before they call you God. or we're calling notify. <laughs> so I got plugged into, I started off with internet security, wound up doing formal security with ADT, uh, from there, uh, went to work for the Salvation Army, uh, doing desktop support, network support, um. Consolidated a bunch of, uh, they had leased lines between all the different distribution centers across uh, the Midwest, so Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, connected all of them up uh, mm-hmm. over VPNs and uh, that sort of thing. a Mesh VPN Network, Lotus Domino, uh, Novell Netware, wow. Veritas Backup Exec.
0: I've heard of half of those about... A decade ago at the earliest. That's right. That's right.
1: That's <laughs> right. And you only see that, I guess, in education and government at this yeah, point, right? right. Um, so from there, um, I went and did some consulting. I, turns out working for a church and a charity, you're making more money moonlighting on the side than you are working <laughs> for the church. So I left and started a, a small consultancy, Warhol's and uh, my leather sole shoes going really? through business parks, asking for like, hey, who's doing your tech support? And wound up pulling wire, doing networking and uh, that kind of stuff. Um,
0: I didn't know you were a consultant. Interesting.
1: <laughs> long way back. Oh. Um, wound up selling out of that and winding up at Fishnet Security in the early days. I think I was employee 40 something, um, which is where I think our network started to mesh and overlap in that community. Mm-hmm. Uh, transition from there to White Hat Security, and that's really where we cemented, connected. I went to my first Black Hats, OWASP, all that sort of the conference Did you environment. Move
0: out to San Jose to be part of that.
1: Uh, yeah, so I was in Kansas City. I moved to Dallas to help launch the efficient office out of the Dallas office. Um, spent a lot of time in and out of the Bay Area helping with some of our blue chip customers out there. Back then, you went to the Bay. That was the Super Bowl, right? So the West Coast was where a lot of the technology stuff was developing. Um, so advising into you know the Ebays and all the big. Players, uh, so I moved out there uh, through. A, we I helped oversee a series of the professional services integrations there. Um, we bought SiegeWorks, was based out of Livermore, uh, so I helped onboard and merge Fishnet, True North, and SiegeWorks, uh, all their professional services. So their AppSec services, the deliverables. It was all kind of it was more art than it was necessarily science at that time. Mm-hmm. The the testing standards had not formalized. PCI was in its infancy, uh, so I moved out to the Bay Areas out there for I think eight, nine, ten years. Uh, living mostly in San Francisco, but up and down the Bay.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. And so that was your, I, it sounds like that was your first real, like deep dive into security was it the fishnet. The
1: fishnet chapter where, F- where fishnet I went from. and then moving into WAIA. That's right. So strong technology foundation, my background is in systems and network management. And then from there, uh, fishnets where I really formalized like the cyber things. Well, we didn't call it cyber yet, but that that's where I went full on with it.
0: And what attracted to you? to security? Like why, why that? I mean, you could have stayed in the consulting route. You could have gone down other things. Why, why security?
1: Uh, The embarrassing part, I, um, did you get hacked? (laughs) No, no. uh, (laughs) Everyone gets hacked at some point. So at some point in eighth grade, and we'll probably talk education at some point, but I never finished my degree and, uh, the cyber space, like what became cyber, we all sat down and read the fine manuals. We read the RFCs. We did all those things. And, HR departments and formal firms like the big four and those, like you had to have a degree, you had to have all these things. Fishnet and the other VARs, they were just like, if you understand it, you can make it work. Like what brought me into security was the notion of best practices, trying to do things right. What that turns into is young men and women that know more than the folks that actually built the systems and can make them work. And so I had a handful of people mop me around the floor and show me how the internet really works and how companies really build and I had an opportunity, a lot of humble pie to grow under their tutelage and coaching. And so consulting for me, wasn't what I was seeking to do, but I was working with technology. There was market opportunity. I didn't have the business perspective I have now looking back saying, this is a rapid growth segment. This is a large TAM. There's a lot of room to grow. But what I wound up doing was putting passion and skill to work in an area that paid well, had a lot of opportunity, and had real hunger. There's, there's still a shortage of capability there.
0: Yeah, I think some people would be surprised to know how completely broken the internet actually is. It's I terrifying. Mean, it's pretty bad. All like, the
1: way from DNS up, everything. All every,
0: everything's really bad. Yeah. One of my favorites, just to kind of tell people, just just so they get a, an idea of what we're talking about, is every single HTTP request your browser has ever made has a misspelling in it. Um, Prefer, yeah. Because refers yeah. misspelled. That's right. That just that's just like that's just a misspelling. But imagine how much else is wrong. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. And like, you know, if it wow. works, don't mess.
1: And that that's where we wound up with a lot of our great IT problems in enterprises now is. It's working. Please don't touch it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I, I, that's, that's an interesting use case because there has been talk about fixing it, but it's so, why I, I write well, <laughs> well, but the answer is we shouldn't for two different reasons. A, there's too much legacy code that would yeah, break. Sure. But second, someone figured out that they completely optimized the internet. You don't actually need this anymore. You don't it like if you had an extra R, that would just add that much more data across the internet that you just don't need. So why why have this extra R? <laughs> right, right. In fact, the I forget, one of the authors of HTTP said something like, I wish I just hadn't put a colon slash slash. I wish it would have just been a slash. Like that extra slash cost us like an enormous amount of, you know, ink was spilled and You know, bandwidth and whatever.
1: There's a lot of that, right? So, if you think about prior art, like, why is our current railway or road lane as wide as it is? And it goes all the way back to Roman roads, right? So, when you think about this, like, some of this you just carry forward and there are bigger problems to solve. And uh, some of that's wasted energy. Mm -hmm. First principles in some of these scenarios aren't worth pursuing.
0: It all stems from uh, how wide two horses' butts are. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) We're stuck with it. All right. So, so when you got into security, I mean, what what was the sensation you had when you finally, like, you're in it now for the first time? Like, were you just sort of looking back and, like, wow, what a naive kid I was? Or, like, you know, users are stupid. Like, how was, you know, a lot of people d- go different Oh, man, paths. Newtonian physics.
1: So I'm sitting here looking back at the cocky young man I was where, like, I'm in, I know this, I'm going to go set all these things straight, I got the best practices, I got the I got the run books. And I go in and folks are like, that that's cute, but no. No, that's not, like, we, like that's... What I did not yet appreciate, what I've come to learn and came to really exercise in my most recent chapters of life is if it looks obviously wrong and dumb, some really smart people struggled with some very real constraints that you don't understand. And so you've got to honor that and pursue to understand before you can have an opinion on that. Mm -hmm. If it's obvious, you're missing something. And that was a really painful, expensive lesson to learn that I think damaged a lot of relationships. As like, like I said, a cocky young man. I think a lot of us were.
0: (laughs) You know, every once in a while, I'll go back to some like old legacy code I wrote <clears throat> for some reason, like I need to fix something. Yeah. And I don't really comment my code very well, like really at all, uh, which is a terrible practice, by the way. Everyone but, documents well. But but occasionally I'll run across this documentation that I write and it's like it's like a paragraph long. And, and it's just like, look. Th- this might look stupid but i spent about three days trying to make this thing work yeah and there are so many demons here and this rfc is broken and this code breaks yes. and if you do this and this and this it will all blow up and any changes to this function over here and this thing will explode in these weird, weird ways and i and i can't debug why there's way too much complexity in how these other apps work and some of it's like third parties and like i don't have control of the data and blah, right. blah 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 anyway good luck <laughs> And I'm like, holy crap. Okay, stay away from that function.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That and, right? So, well, you know, um, I'll call it the Gartner tax, but there's all kinds of things where, you know, if you're going to have completeness of vision or all these other capabilities and integrations, this is the classic business case study that I don't know has been written. Like the Novell Border Manager, it did everything. It did all of it terribly. but It did everything. (laughs) Now, there's a diaspora of leadership from the Novell organization that's in a number of places that matter now, like Apple and Microsoft. Mm -hmm. Um, But... Not just half-baked solutions, but the notion that we need to allow an integration. This is how we wound up with Log4j and a bunch of other things—is like expansion of capability that were not solved problems.
0: So, you did auditing work at some point across that. uh, that I'm still apologizing for (laughs) time spent on it. Yeah, so um,
1: I was, I think, in the second class of what we called QDSPs. Uh, So before PCI was a thing, uh, the the predecessor to that was the Visa CISP. There was the MasterCard SDP. There were a series of programs, Amex, uh, Discover had their disk. All of the major payment card brands kind of brought those standards back together. And that became PCI. So I was in the second class of QDSPs, which later became, it doesn't matter, I'm using a bunch of alphabet soup. I was one of the early credit card auditors. And so I think they were qualified security assessors. Spent a lot of time on the road doing this, showing up, thinking I had smart solutions. But What it turns into, what I later came to appreciate was in the three lines of defense model, your job is to sanity check. Specifically, is the solution sane? Is this intent, like functioning as intended, as designed, and is it effective? And forcing folks to step through that, to go back to first principles argumentation of we're trying to achieve these outcomes. Is it effective? And it took me way too long to arrive at a partnership minded vantage point. Imagine like we've all dealt with auditors. You meet the partner; they're great. The team comes on site, definitely green, wet behind the ears. The world's their oyster. They're very smart. That, to your point and your question earlier, they've arrived. They're security folks now, and we've we've got to guide them. And part of that's our investment in the forward-looking community that we're a part of. But yeah, I was a PCI auditor. I helped with HIPAA, which, by the way, is not a certification, uh, a body of standards. Um, I was never aICP or any
0: that kind so, okay. of Okay, so what do you think about auditors now? I mean. Or, or maybe we step back from the people yeah. for a second yeah. and talk about what they're auditing. What, what do you think of the compliance mandates these days? Is this, is this working? Because I've seen a lot of anecdotes that basically say it's not really doing the job. But there's things that are working, yeah. but it's not actually the compliance standards. Or worse yet, some of the compliance standards are causing tons of downstream negative effects of people doing really dumb things to be compliant. So what, what I mean, what are your what are your thoughts on it?
1: This is one of my favorite arguments that I used to have with Jeremiah over our wall, <laughs> our little cubicle wall <laughs> on Bunker Hill down in Santa Clara. Um, the virtue of auditing and these security standards makes sense. Uh, if we step all the way back and ask this notion of custodianship. So I've got a three year old and a five year old. And the idea of entrusting my world to someone to look after my home, but more than that, my children, um, I wanna know that I can trust them. I wanna know that certain outcomes will be respected and if anything's awry, we'll be I'll be notified. And when we start talking about data, like the credit card number in your wallet right now is actually owned by the bank that issued that card. And they're accountable to the payment brand associated with it, so Visa or whoever. That's important to the credit card company. Your social security number, your likeness, all these things are associated with you. And so the idea that, okay, our company's collected all this information, we're actually custodians of this. And the folks that we have information from may or may not have opted out or opted in to that experience. And so the virtue of what we're trying to achieve... Uh, when we speak about custodianship, what auditing is intended to be is asking the questions, have we done enough? To your point, I think the fine point on this is, have we achieved a reasonable standard or re, uh, a standard of reasonable care? It's never been defined. Mm-hmm. If you go back to the guidance issued by but the what, attorney- What do you oh, think it is? What I think it is?
0: Yeah, like if you try to define it.
1: Oh man, there'll be dragons. <laughs> uh, in grad school, that was what I argued in my, uh, my paper. Um, if you look at what the attorney general in California issued, so this is Kamala before she was VP- Uh, I think they referenced 19 different standards, which was literally hundreds of arrows in the attorney general's uh, quiver to shoot at you if you screwed up on anything, but there was no modicum of baseline. So if we step back, the bookies, the folks that are placing bets on, are you safe enough for us to insure? And what's that going to cost us when you fail? I think cyber insurance is one of the things that's going to wag the dog because they're placing bets. They're setting minimum standards. And if you fail, they've got a real good handle on this prior to cybersecurity getting this book of data. In the insurance industry, our best bet was PCI. Genuinely PCI. Oh, they had the it's Terrible. It's ripe with opportunity to improve. But it's better than nothing. <laughs> we can argue whether it's setting a ceiling or a base, but for the sake of argument, it's a virtuous thing. And I think it was the right next step. And I think the right next step now is arguing for a standard of care coming out of cyber insurance.
0: I remember I had a had a conversation with Bits one time, uh, the banking it used to stand for something like banking information technology standard or something like that. It doesn't stand for anything anymore for some reason. I don't know why I decided it doesn't stand for something, but, and I had this long conversation with them. I'm like, okay, here's all these things you could do to make this better. Right. Yeah. They were using OS top 10. and I'm like, okay, but there, you know, there's a whole bunch of other vulnerabilities out there, like a bunch, like well, this the whole, all... the last
1: threat classification project was meant yeah, to be yeah. a taxonomy. It was a much brighter thing. But,
0: and, and, yeah. and that was even out of date at the time. Sure. They were starting to move into V2, which, right. so I'm like, look, There's so much more we could do here and actually really flesh this out. And I thought it was a cool standard because uh, it was self-assessment, which I like. You know, it's not requiring auditors to do anything. Right. And then it trickles down to all these sub companies that want to work with the banks. And like, this is a really great standard. If we could settle on this and make this the thing, I could point everyone to this. Like, I don't care what industry you're in. Like, you want to work with a bank, you work, you do this. Right. And just kind of makes things easy. Yep. And they're like, okay, great. That's how it all sounds really interesting. Okay. So what bank are you with? Like, I'm not with a bank. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm still like, the, I'm just, the who are you just thing a, was a big problem. I'm in just, this a, I'm just a dude here. That's right. That's right. And they're like, we cannot work with you if you're not Can't listen bank. to you.
1: Like you ha- like a computer good isn't enough. Like there's no, <laughs> there's no threshold to say, listen, you're a respectable authority. You seem like a personal person. You seem articulate. It seemed like, you know, that you understand the problem. It's not enough. Not enough. Not enough. Not even close. The other side of this. So you, right now you're arguing completeness of vision. The, the taxonomy. I being broad are banks.
0: We're not talking about not. Money. We're like we're all the money.
1: <laughs> yes. And, but they are also <laughs> wrestling with, okay, so part of wanting you to be at a bank means you've got skin in the game and you understand their problem. And when they start to argue the good enough Pareto frontier, they're going to be able to agree. All right. Law of diminishing returns. That's a rational threshold because I, I think it's a vetting process to determine whether or not they're going to invest time in that conversation with you.
0: Of course, just a stupid, I mean, really stupid uh, because I, I actually was not going to force banks to do anything. Sure. This is a trickle-down thing. That's it's right. them secure by virtue of everyone who works with but them. But you carry secure. no
1: liability or personal exposure if you were to solve this problem. 100%. So you're creating all these things for them. And if you're not going to feel the pain of what you've created, they're not interested in being involved. Remember, there's there, there's dynamic forces in place for this whole cybersecurity equation. I'm aware. Man. So that, like the legal <laughs> aspect, like the duty to care, like you, if, if you identify something, you have to act on it, right? So- the duty to act <laughs> is a scary thing, and if you're elucidating them, making them fully aware of all these problems, now, now, now they have to do something about it, and okay. that never goes away. Okay, well that brings We're us. us that, Sorry. No,
0: no. I th- actually, this brings us nicely into White um, Hat, yeah. because what happens when I start running my stuff? Well, first of all, it's a software as a service scanner, so that yeah. was like wild voodoo and scary and everyone gonna map to all of our
1: inputs across all of our stuff and all your yeah.
0: vulnerabilities are going to live in one place. they right. everyone's a, a treasure place. map to my company. Yeah, my, yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. But I'm still going to leave all the bones out there. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Details. But, um, but I've always thought the duty of care and what I think ends up happening is it ends up being gross negligence because what ends up happening is they look, they look at this stuff and they're like, oh, man, do I really want to fix any of this stuff? I'm like, can I just kind of sweep the fact that we know this under the floor? And and some of them do. And even the ones who want to fix it, it's like six months to a year or more. Sometimes sure. they never fix these vulnerabilities. Well,
1: you, we just talked about how wonderfully documented and concise your code was and easy. A lot of things are to fix and you know, I'll mention it again, but the pretty frontier that, that point where, okay, what's, what's an acceptable percentage of what's being closed Is it 60, 70, 80, 90. 100%. Okay. So why aren't
0: we talking money instead of high, medium and low or vulnerable, not vulnerable, like these binary switches or <clears throat> stoplight security is garbage.
1: Well, stoplight, all right, so there's endless research on uh, stoplight security being a problem because it's not actually quantifying the problem. Um, We're moving into a business conversation now, right? So I have, I'll say, 100 developers. I don't even know what my company is, but let's say I've got 100 engineers that are writing code, managing my infrastructure, writing features that are going to turn into revenue. Uh, There's competitive pressures. There's maintenance pressures. A lot of the capabilities we're building in engineering uh, for systems, for middleware, for front-end applications, they don't turn into features yet because you've got to build all... It takes A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Now I have enough to write a musical scale. Now I can start composing music. So I've built all these capabilities. I haven't shipped a feature yet. What percentage is an acceptable percentage for me to spend on maintenance and capability, not feature development? My job is to turn caffeine into code and code into money. <laughs> a lot of this, that what we're talking about is patching and maintenance, which is not tied to revenue production. You would call this,
0: See, I think it is, um, I don't disagree
1: with you. I'm, I'm advocating for multiple perspectives. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. They, they, okay. Again, there's multiple forces in play okay. while we're advocating for. Okay. It. Okay. You go to the doctor, you know exactly what they're going to tell you. Eat cleaner, drink more water, drink less of that stuff. Get some sleep, exercise a little bit. That's just the big doctor. Sleep. I'm trying oh, to yeah, get you sure. to come but back. It's, a, it's the same things. <laughs> but we all know this, right? You're going to go and they're going to tell you the same thing and you're not going to do it. You're not going to do it. You're going to do, do what you want to do. You're creating value for yourself in a way that brings you happiness, joy, gets you out of I don't know what, but you know what you need to do. You're just not doing it. And it's the same conversation I'm stealing from Bob Lord here. Same conversation uh, we have with okay, companies. Okay.
0: So, but I don't I don't necessarily think that's always true. So for instance, not, there's a lot nothing, of vulnerabilities. Not there's a lot of vulnerabilities out there that should not be dealt with. Like they should not be touched. They're just way too expensive. Like the value creation to the company, like the amount of value this company goes up by virtue of fixing this vulnerability is negative because i'm going to spend some money and i'm i'm not going to see any actual upside for doing that whereas other vulnerabilities <clears throat> it might be cheap to fix yeah and if i don't fix them the value of the company is worth nothing it's just gone or worth wildly less depending on the situation
1: so then we're going to steal from wendy and talk about uh you know cheeseburger risk management you're going to have a heart attack i just like all right i'm a chiefs fan uh andy our head coach andy reed he could lose a few pounds. I'm worried he's going to have a heart attack on the sideline of one of these games. Cheeseburger risk management—he's always placing bets. Bet you cheeseburger. Bet you cheeseburger. One of those cheeseburgers is going to lead to his heart attack, and we're going to lose Andy Reid. Right? Mm-hmm. To your point, two problems. One, we don't know how many of these we need to adjust. Like, which how many of these vulns need to be patched? But the bigger problem is how do you know which vuln is the vuln?
0: Well, that comes from the insurance companies. They? <laughs> oh, really? Uh, well, <clears throat> okay. With one massive caveat, this has nothing to do with the government. They're in a whole other ball game. You sure. cannot measure them. And sure. They're very different sure. threat actors. Sure. Or, or even if you're the kind of company who does government, um, like if you were to handle toxic waste or something, you fall in a different category. Correct. Correct. But if you're like a retailer, yeah. um, we know what retailers get compromised by now. I mean, we have decades now of experience in finding out what they get compromised by. And it's a handful of things right now the insurance companies are tracking around 60 something volumes total that lead to actual breach loss, not breach, breach loss. You know, obviously things you can get compromised, but if the end result is nothing, who cares? I mean, it's maybe bad, but it's not the kind of bad that is going to submarine the value of your company. Sure. I think we, uh, we, as you said, they're going to they're the tail that's wagging the dog. I think they're going to mandate who does what, when, where, what, and how. And I, I,
1: I, I think it's both intellectually honest and directionally correct. I think in 03 or 04, speaking at Sector, one of the the conversations we had after a, a talk, the audience asked, like, what's going to improve the maturity? And was the cybersecurity industry. But the point of that talk and what it's like, what wow blab- times that-
0: have changed. Right. Everyone hated this topic like right. two right. years ago. But, but it's gone full <laughs> circle, right? So,
1: you know, we're going to talk about what's, um, what, Volume of data, we have to be actuarially backed and statistically relevant. Um,
0: I don't know, 20 years of old data is kind of useful.
1: Sure, but post-facto exploitation, uh, forensics, and then correlating kill chains. I hate kill chains, but failure modes. If you go back and look at aviation or NTSB traffic traffic data, all these sorts of things, you have a, a chain of events that led to uh, an adverse event, right? Um, what we're going to get to is... The forensic investigation and what we identified as the contributing causes, I can tell you without a doubt, the majority of uh, aircraft accidents, fatalities are tied to pilot rest.
0: Pilot Pilot rest. Lack of it. Lack of rest. Yeah. yeah, Or or resting while they're piloting. Details. It's all the same.
1: (laughs) Yes. hundred percent. So if if you're not well rested, like we're knowledge workers, Robert, we use our brain. We're human brain computers and we use our knowledge to work. Mm -hmm. Pilots are the same. When they're not well rested, they are far more prone to be slow to respond, to misinterpret commands or to make... Uh, to make the wrong inputs. We don't have the same statistical trajectory yet. Mm-hmm. And we've come so far in the last five years due to cyber insurance, placing these long bets and learning very expensive lessons, yeah. very expensive Not lessons. Kidding. We can make jokes about Bitcoin and crypto uh, like ransomware and all this stuff. But mm, I, I think we're starting to get to a point where we need to have informed conversations with the bookies placing the bets and look towards what that baseline standard and how we're going to make
0: those trade-offs will be. The really interesting thing is that's not going to be expensive for them for very long. I mean, currently, yeah. sort of expensive, <clears throat> but long-term, not at all. Because what's going to end up happening is I'm I'm a company. I want to do business with my customer. My customer demands I have cyber insurance, so I get it. Then I get breached. What am I going to do? I'm going to go trigger my cyber insurance claim. Well, cool, I'll get my money back. But next year they're not going to insure me. And so that's gonna very quickly kind of slap people and go, okay, you have to have cyber insurance because your customers demand it. You also cannot use cyber insurance.
1: It's also always a cap it's also presently a capital market signal, right? So for a long time, large cut numbers so 15 million, 5 million, 10 million, 20 million was well, accessible. And that's got it gotten increasingly expensive because one, they've had to pay out. They've had limit losses. Right. Um, but what we have is a market signal saying, listen, like we're not going to do business unless you meet this threshold. Used to, we'd say, I need to see your sock to your ISO 27,000 series. Like we need these papers where you may have had malicious compliance. You may have had a narrow audit scope where your pristine little Japanese Zen garden looks perfect, but the rest of your operations terrible. Now, insurance is actually going to be a limiting threshold so to your point there's accountability there at the same time i think the underwriters are very interested do you want to hire a CISO that's never had a breach before do you want to hire someone that's a wartime CISO that's seen a lot of things same thing for a program listen you got hit you had this failure we it's been documented (laughs) what have you done about it and can we track that and at what point are you insurable again companies find religion after they have a bad event
0: yeah, but the problem is if you have a bad event and you trigger the insurance claim because you just don't know better. You're it's like car like insurance mm-hmm. or anything
1: else. You're going to want up paying more for it later or not be able to get it again.
0: Or not be able to get it again. Yep. That's the that's big right. trick. And so yep. you're like, it's basically a, a counter. The second you trigger it, trigger that claim... These are complex <clears>
1: systems. Yeah, I agree.
0: One year later, you're basically going out of business if you're not careful. That That's pretty gnarly. Um, comma, I have seen... Um, <laughs> this is definitely an upbeat episode. I, <laughs> I have seen... Um, there was one company I talked to in Germany and they're like, like Robert, you have no idea how right you are about this whole thing. We had this happen. We triggered the claim. We were not able to get cyber insurance again, <clears throat> but we had to. So we researched, I think they went like 30 different companies trying to get cyber insurance. Yeah. And they finally found one who would give it to them, but only if they bought this mega yeah. enormous, huge, huge, like huge percentage of their total revenue across their company. And it was like one small light item, light item like amongst fire and flood and all this other junk that they didn't want. And it's like a a pretty strong possibility. They didn't even realize they were giving away cyber insurance because it was sort of like buried in this mega policy. And that's the only reason they were able to get it. So uh, maybe, maybe there's just like this massive punishment that the cyber, the cyber insurance industry can levy against you with non-traditional vehicles that are wildly too expensive to make like anything else.
1: There's definitely a punitive risk. Um, if I were far stronger in stats, uh, and more interested in actuarial science, I would be definitely (laughs) moving into that space. I think it's the most exciting and the greatest potential. Like there's definitely downside, but I think it's one of the things that's going to drive us forward as an industry.
0: I sure hope so. Well, okay. I wish it was better without them, but since we can't get our shit together, I think it's gotta be them.
1: We don't have, or so NASA has the ASRS, the aviation safety reporting system where folks voluntarily or under guidance get. They, they put, we as pilots put information in to improve the system and part of it to be a culpa. So if you get called on by the flight standards district office saying, Hey, you did this thing. I filed a report. I made an error. Like we're, we're human. Oh, it wasn't malicious. It's like, let's make this better. You work is with it them. totally voluntary. So uh, can, ASRS is voluntary. They yeah. can't
0: tell you like, Hey, you fucked up. Go, go do it. Go write in this thing. No,
1: because at that point there it's, I think about it, it's federal. It's not like state. <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh, you've been called into, they call the FISDA, the flight standards Dis- uh, district office, and they're going to pull you in, saying, listen, here's what happened. I had a red light departure. And this is, I think in that, that sector keynote, I was telling the story of taking off with, I had a radio failure and uh, I was at a towered airport and I took off without permission. And so the, Uh, control tower it was their first day in the tower their first day by themselves in the tower and they've got this clown that me takes (laughs) off in this plane and they're like yo plane circle stay away from and that that that's on me i'm very sorry if you're out there Uh, that was me it was me Um, and you know i landed like i literally made contact they're like well you gotta land i my phone's ringing as i'm landing uh we're calling you on the radio like you need to answer your calls i'm like i don't hear anything what are you talking about I talked to the control tower director for Palo Alto Airport. I wound up going to the San Jose FISDO, the Flight Standards District Office, and you know, two people hold transcription, hold tape. No, no, no. it was camera and audio recorded, and mm-hmm. there, we we decomposed all of the things that happened. I see. Yeah, it was terrifying, and I thought like that was my first flight outside. Like I was a licensed pilot, never going to clip my wings. I was broken hearted. I mean, like yeah. physically ill with it. ASRS is the opportunity saying, yeah, you know what? I, I had this issue, and I'm going to report it because. Aviation is actually bigger than me. It's, uh, it's something that all pilots are custodians of, and it, it, it's such a wonderful privilege, but it's not right. And so part of it is caring for the system and hoping, you know, somebody, our kids get to share this and these sorts of things. But, um, yeah, it's completely voluntary.
0: So what I just heard is I can fly without a radio and I get to keep my license. You can do anything once. <laughs> I see. Interesting. Okay, well, let's uh, move forward in your career a little bit. So, at one point, you went on to uh, go basically run Black Hat. Um, yeah. The second largest, but in my opinion, the best uh, cyber sh- um, conference in the United States, and maybe even the world. Um, what was that like?
1: Terrifying. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, so for the folks that are not cyber folks on your like in your listener base, Uh, There's a handful of shows like there's a massive volume of shows back in that day. There were a handful of shows. Uh, So some small regional events that were glorious and tremendous, deeply technical. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is the Buy the vendors for the vendor show RSA, which is phenomenal, especially for the corporate commercial buyers. Uh, A lot of folks come together and there's a concentration of folks that are there. There's the research centric by the community for the industry. That was Black Hat. And then by the community for the community. That's the DEF CON community. And so Black Hat was this beautiful evolution that came out of DEF CON. That was like, listen, all right. So cyber was the staying and or sorry, at the time it was security. Security is the thing. DEF CON was come on, come off. About five years in, like, listen, some of the folks had jobs. And so they approached Jeff and asked like, hey, like, is there a way the company could pay for me to go? So I wound up sometime later running the show. Uh, I talked to my mentors. I'm like terrified. I don't think I should do this. I'm not qualified to do this. I don't know what I'm doing. They're like, do it. Don't screw it up. Go. <laughs> so I did it. I was terrified. Um, it was, it was such a privilege to serve the community in this way, uh, for marketing professionals and folks that work in events, God bless them. They never hear anything positive. All they know is what's on fire, what's broken, what's happening. It's everything's an emergency at a conference. Um, it was a wild couple of years. Uh, we produced of course, Black Hat USA. We had Black Hat, um, we were in Amsterdam for Black Hat Europe. Uh, we had Black Hat Abu Dhabi at the time.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Briefly, yeah, I remember yeah, that We one. were
1: going to transition to, uh, to Singapore. Um, we did some, We were going to do something in Turkey and then Civil War <laughs> popped off. Uh, we did something <laughs> in uh, Sao Paulo. Like we, we were doing a lot of things with a brand. Um, and we were trying to balance this notion of, you know, research first and trying to protect that. And the conversation needed to be about the research and the community bring for this research and the sponsors the sponsors were genuinely supporting that conversation, that ecosystem. And that's, that's really what the magic of the show was. Um, I don't consider myself an events professional. I learned a lot about it. I used a lot of my product management background there. Um, of course my roots in technology looking back, Robert, I'm not nearly as technical as I ever thought I was being coming a part of black hat. I realized I didn't know anything. <laughs> Not well, at all of the depth, but, but well,
0: <clears throat> that's what happens when you get to a certain point. You just you finally see over the cliff. You're like, whoa. There's so much more depth in all so these areas. That's much right. That's that Dunning Kruger, like there's yeah. so much depth. Which they there. prove recently doesn't exist. But it's still a useful model. But I mean, yeah, he has still useful. He yeah. instinctively it always feels like it's a real thing. And I yeah. think that's actually a really cool moment. Uh, some people are terrified and they back off. They're like, wow, okay. I can't
1: get there. I can't get there.
0: I'm so far from there. I'm not gonna I'm gonna stop right here. Yeah. But you didn't, you actually kept going.
1: I didn't have words for it at the time, uh, but what I tried to adopt was this notion of the beginner's mind. And so if it's safe to say, listen, I have expertise, but I'm not going to be an expert in any of these things. I I pride myself in being a generalist. And I think we've created uh, an ecosystem in the cyberspace about, you know, everyone being an expert in one thing, but leaders need to be executives, especially need to be like, they call it T-shaped, you know, a couple inches deep all the way across and be conversant or technically grounded in all these things and expert in a handful of places. Right. And I, I, I was very comfortable knowing I was surrounding myself with experts and I could see through the folks that were full of it. And I knew where to find and be vulnerable with these experts. And so it, w- it was, a real treat to be vulnerable in this population and to be entrusted and to argue for truth and clarity as we tried to make really hard brand decisions. Um, I would never do it again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it was brutal. Um,
0: what, what, in what way? Why?
1: Uh, uh, for instance, uh, so we, I'm, I'm producing events uh, with the black hat team in black hat Abu Dhabi. And we're, like, the checklist to produce a show is 18 months out. And the the F&B, the food and beverage, and the the facility contract is negotiated, like, three to five years in advance. Like, that's just how events work. And I want to say we're at T-90 days from Black Hat uh, Abu Dhabi. It was going to be on 12-12-12. There's a part of the world that cares a lot about numbers, and the Sheck's daughter... Decided she was going to get married on 12-12-12 and we got booted 90 days out. I'm on a rooftop in <laughs> Dubai with uh, Stefano Zanero uh, at some major security conference. where they are just kind of pump the brand and, you know, amp the event at this other security conference. And I get a phone call. I'm sure you're having a great day. I'm very, I imagine you're going to feel some kind of way about this. Just letting you know that um, you don't have a venue. And I'm like 90 days out. We had uh, General Alexander coming to speak, which is how we wound up with him after the uh, the Snowden thing happened uh-huh. for USA. But fire drills. I mean, like we've got folks that are shipping hardware. This is back before virtual machines and EC2 were a thing. So AWS wasn't an option. Folks were shipping crates of computers and stacks and hardware and all this stuff. The Circus
0: Ugh. was arriving.
1: The circus was arriving. And like we had to scramble. <laughs> and so we shifted it and we, we lost our keynote. Jeff had to speak on short notice. Like, you, you make lemonade as fast as you can, but th- this is what the life of live events is. And so for those of you that work in tech, like hug your events team you know, <laughs> to care for them at the events, they're not sleeping. There's always something wrong and that's all they're hearing about. Um, it was, it, it was, it was amazing. It was humbling. Uh, it was such a privilege and a pleasure to serve, but I'm, I, I did my time
0: mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: never again.
0: Mm-hmm. But you say that, and you're still on the advisory board for the CISO Summit, and I know you care a lot about the brand. Sure, of Um, course. So, I mean, you're not really out. They just keep dragging you back in. (laughs) (laughs) I think everyone deep
1: down wants to be a part of something bigger than themselves, right? You want to be a part of something that's big. And uh, this is probably the Care Bear Stare moment, but I believe deeply in what we're trying to do in cybersecurity. I, I care deeply about the community, the folks that a lot of folks have gone over their skis. A lot of folks have made good and bad bets, but... All in all, what we're doing is trying to create safety. We're trying to make it expensive and dangerous to be evil. And so there's an economic game that is not well understood and it's a multi-level game of chess. You've got legal exposure. You've got corporate exposure. You've got competitive exposure. And to our prior conversation about code and fixing vulnerabilities, we don't know which ones are the ones that are gonna get us under. we'd fix them. Same thing with your health. There's a lot of forces in competition where we have not, like the population of business-minded MBA type folks in security leadership is infinitesimally small as a population our ability to defend our hypothesis and to partner with the business to drive this. This is why the CISO in most organizations is not truly part of the weekly CEO standup in their companies. They're, you know, several layers down in the org. Mm -hmm. A lot of us haven't earned our seat and that's like, we're maturing as an industry, but we're doing something important. It's great to be a part of that.
0: Yeah. I care, man. (laughs) Yeah, I I get it. So, okay. You, um, you have some perspective now because you've left. Well, you were you went to the conference, you ran the conference, you're out of the conference, you're back in as an advisor. Never left. Um, in some way, you've never left. You've, you've been part of this thing throughout. Um, how do you feel, if at all, that the industry has evolved in, let's say, the conference space, but in general? like, Is it the same industry you grew up with?
1: Wow, Um, I'm increasingly convinced a lot of the things we thought we knew, we didn't. Um, I find that the data is starting to inform this. Think about our access to the board. No one gave a rip. Over the last five to seven years, we went from Radio Shack nerd to it's on the news. It's part of the dinner table conversation. What we're doing actually matters. Um, I imagine most of the folks in our industry do you mean like Snowden matters? Is that what you mean? The Snowden and the personality thing. Are, like
0: how did, how did that happen?
1: There were a lot of major events that brought us to prime time. And when I say us, yes, I mean the industry. Great job patching your computer. No CEOs ever said that to their organization. But now they're held to account. And these are dashboards that are not only in front of the CEO and the executive team and a QBR, but they're in front of the board. And when the board's asking about end-of-life software because it came up at an insurance renewal... They, they care. Mm-hmm. You're seeing more and more CISOs receiving CIO duties or CIOs underneath their org because it no longer takes twice, three, five times the security team organization to run your mail server, your file server, all these things. These are all cloud capable things. The CISO is now specifying outcomes that are business critical. At an MSSP, folks don't care about your CIO. They care about the CISO and how you're protecting your commitment to me. And that's a huge evolution because that power dynamic was very, very different. And so when we work in the MSSP space and SaaS or any of these others, when we're doing our diligence, whether we're going to buy from you or a competitor, the CISO's output and those metrics and those dashboards and the compliance endorsements, all those things are now critical and material to the business transaction, including whether or not you get paid or renewed. And that that isn't what it used to be. And so we're more and more business relevant than we've ever been.
0: Well, (laughs) that's true, but I've also noticed a degradation in just about every other dimension. Uh, It's weird. Like, we have better tooling. I think the tooling's gotten better, but I am not seeing the quality of research or (laughs) the community doesn't seem as cohesive. Um, the, The... Thought the new thought that's coming out is not as impressive as the old thought. I mean, it's not like quantum leaps like it used to be. Now it's like this. In minor, terms of
1: attack research and the stuff we're seeing in black hat CFPs. Yeah, or? just in general. Yeah. Okay, yeah. But it's
0: all just kind of like a gentle nudge in the bright direction. Not like, okay, we figured it out. We 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 did the thing, and now here's how to think about this problem. Like that that type of research is very rare by today's, you know, cadence, especially <clears throat> when you think about how many more people are in the industry. It seems like it's just sunk dramatically
1: i think there's two divergent reasons for that right Mm-mm. so with new technologies coming out what's old is new and so old exploit patterns apply to the new technology stacks right so first you're going to see uh, a repeat history repeats itself like if we go back to a meta level and so these same types of vulnerabilities and exploits that we saw are going to happen in new technologies the same things all right so we're, we're talking about web application security and uh, how to defend our web property and now we're gonna put management boards with network cards that are gonna be exposed to the internet. And that's a great thing. Okay, cool. We've made progress in AppSec. Now we have this cloud substrate that we've not hardened. And so your super scalar infrastructure on GCP or on AWS or on Azure. Why would I hack your web app when I could just copy all of your infrastructure and then delete it for you or encrypt it underneath you? And these same failure modes, the biggest differences I think are one, history is repeating itself. The number two uh, accountability's changed. <laughs> and so, um, we have a large, you don't think the people
0: are a big driver in that.
1: I don't know that we're able to surface all this because the, the, the market drivers, so vulnerabilities, there's a secondary market that's more real than it's ever been.
0: That's true. That's and so true.
1: are you incentivized to go speak or make a couple of million selling exploits and vulnerability research? That's fair. We've got to create safety around this, this cycle. And so what case
0: it sucks, releasing vulnerabilities. I mean, it's
1: horrible. It's, it's punitive. And so a big part of the work I did, uh, and helped coordinate coming out of rapid seven was we were driving safety for the research community. Uh Your baby's ugly is a terrifying thing to say. (laughs) And then when you get lawyers involved with this notion of cease and desist or libel or all these other threats that are going to come in, the computer fraud and abuse act, the DMCA, all these other pieces, ECPA and all the other bodies of law that say, Maybe you didn't have permission to do that. You didn't ask her permission. This is a violation of returns of service. There's all these other things. These are trespass statutes. We've well, we not created safety for you to say, I found a vulnerability. And other
0: security researchers hate you because you came up with the vuln that they were sub- working on or sure. whatever. Yeah. Or, hey, I wrote this obscure paper that no one ever read and I talked about this like six six years ago or whatever. It's like, oh, I'm sorry. Well, and that's or, a big
1: part of the CFP. So a vantage point you and I have that I imagine few people in your, your audience are going to be aware of is every year we see multiple researchers releasing the same family of vulnerabilities that have never met each other on opposite sides of the world. And the same issue has been identified by several different groups at the same time. And have brought it and we're going to figure out who's got the goods and who can actually deliver it on stage Mm -hmm. one or two. Wow. This is really great. Wait a minute. I saw this three years. ago. No, like they didn't take the time to Google that this has happened before.
0: Or or sometimes it's very hard to find. Yes. Like truly obscure papers. Like, if you go to this link and there's a subdirectory with this guy who did this or it's changed thing, hosting you know. platforms and it's not yeah. indexed
1: correctly and you can't find it yeah. like there's layers of it and comma hackers are notoriously great at documentation. Aren't they?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I am notably bad. Um, so I think all of that tr- is true, but also the black hats also hate it. Uh, because when it wasn't disclosed, they had access to this vulnerability, but when it becomes uh, disclosed, there's a very short time frame where they have to run and use it, and sure. then it's it kind of loses its utility.
1: So you're talking about specifically on the criminal side,
0: criminal population. true blackouts, yeah, Check. yeah, yeah. Not the conference. Sorry. Um, so I, I don't, I don't know anybody who really likes it. you know, and as you said, the the security industry or whatever comes after you and says, hey, you shouldn't be doing that because of X, Y, Z, and then you have this. Full disclosure versus, you know, private disclosure or whatever thing going on. So this debate, so you have all this random kind of rumbling in the background with these people who don't actually know what's going on. And yeah. I mean, I've probably released hundreds of issues now. Hundreds? I don't know the real Every number. Every one of
1: those was a delightful experience you'd love to do again. Oh my you know, promoter God. promoter score in the process looks like, like.
0: It's like a mess. Yeah. The most recent one was a Nan Injection and the... Um, and they came back and told me it's not an issue. And I'm like,
1: we talked about this one. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. So it's, it's just like, it's like the industry has not figured out how to make it comfortable for researchers to exist. So I don't know why researchers exist. I mean, other than, as you said, to release vulnerabilities into black hat markets or gray, gray markets anyway.
1: At the meta level, this is a complicated problem. And there are a lot of market forces that make this complicated for, for valid, good reasons. Um, and I think a lot of what drives research into the public eye is either one bounty programs, voluntary disclosure or incentivized structures that otherwise don't exist safe Harbor, which is, you know, a five, no more than eight year old idea, like disclose.io and the stuff that came from Casey John Ellis, the bug community. And part of that, um, uh, center for security he's, research. Like he's, the, he's been on the podcast. Yeah. There, there's a number of these things that need to be brought forward and we haven't solved that. And so then we turned around to this other question. where like, that, what was the McKinsey report we shared? I want to say between one and a half and $2 trillion in a global cybersecurity market.
0: In the next 10 years, that's fast. That's, that's a fast That's growth. huge, that's massive.
1: Right. And it's not unrealistic. Uh, all of our infrastructure is online. Uh, but when you think about that, that's a lot of economic incentive to drive buyers and diligence folks to take a hard look at that. And so when you think about that in the cybersecurity marketplace, research that grounds a solution set or correct thinking about the problem that, that's what we're doing there is creating that virtuous conversation. And that's that going full circle back to why I and you are still a part of the Black Hat community. My hypothesis is we're, we're still serving that conversation because it hasn't been solved.
0: <clears throat> For sure. Um, so I moved away from the uh, the CFP board. So I, I actually just found it to be too much chatter, too much noise, too much stuff going on. It's also a lot of work. A lot of work. But not for a lot of gain, unfortunately. Um, and I think there were some good people who came on after I did who could kind of do the same thing I was doing. They like they had the same kind of background. They could look at this, the same things in the same ways that I would do it. So good enough. I don't need to be there. But when I moved onto the CISO uh, board, <clears throat> which is uh, you know the, the sort of the more upper echelon type people, my rationale for doing that, and I stick by it, is I'm concerned that they're not seeing the right kinds of things. Like they're, if, if they, the just, CISOs and the, the security CISOs. leaders aren't seeing the right stuff. Yeah. Okay. I, I am. In fact, I'm pretty convinced of it. Of course. And so <clears throat> when I joined, um, I was arguing with some people who were <laughs> black, hat, not yourself, but others that this was, um, a problem that we need to get in front of these people a little bit better. We need to say the things that need to be said. And, um, and uh, they're like, well, why don't you come over and do this thing? And for me, it's always been an opportunity to say like, okay, I think the biggest problem you're facing that you, I know you weren't paying attention to is blah sure. and getting them sure. this curated list of things. Sure. Because if they are at least sort of on board with it, it'll kind of trickle down to the masses. Um, but not necessarily the other way around. Like we can have the best talks period ever at Black Hat, but it won't necessarily get up to the more executive level. And even if it gets to them, they're like, what am I going to do with this? Go fix it. You know, they're they're not going to take away from it a greater w- way of thinking about it necessarily. So <clears throat> for me, moving more on the executive route feels like a choke point. You know, I, I, this is a, pla- a very tight place where I can spend a very small amount of energy and have a much bigger impact than I could when I was doing sort of more the CFP route.
1: I buy all of that. (laughs) I support that. Um, The challenges I I wrestle with, if if you think back through any of the kickoff calls we've done for the CISO review board, um, we show up, we have a off the cuff, spontaneous conversation on, Hey, so what are the big trends? And in this moment, my hope is you've done homework thinking about what's going to go in there. And I think we all have good intentions. Can we locate our notes? We'll have to talk about exocortex and managing memory and thought, but it's fairly spontaneous and we've got folks that, you know, have cognitive biases and motivations we have to manage across and hold each other accountable for. And then you have to cultivate what's available and what we're going to drive the conversation sure. towards. That's an extremely difficult process. Absolutely,
0: But it's, it, but it's, it's a knowable problem or it, it's a problem that. Uh, it's a
1: describable universe. We can contain that.
0: Yeah. Right. Yep. Um, and so to me it's worth the energy it's it's a small footprint of time compared to everything else i work very on very
1: high very high roi very high impact yeah. like i fully agree with that
0: yeah and the funny thing is i think people sort of expect that i get a lot out of it i don't
1: no you don't i, I don't and get any out the, of it <clears throat> you spend a lot of time Making sure we've got the right topics, the right frame, the right flow, and we're facilitating the right conversations in the room. And the day of, Robert, where are you? Not in the room as much as you need to be.
0: Yeah, I've got other meetings. <laughs> I'm like mm-hmm. bouncing around doing. A t- Going to Black hat's
1: so hard at this stage because mm-hmm. you and I are pilled in a hundred directions that we get the show. Wh- wh-
0: which is that's just that's um, normal. Well, it's also demonstrating how useful that conference actually is where a group of CISOs is not the right place for me to be at some, at some points. Like, sorry, like I have other places that are more important than a group of CISOs. So I, um, I actually think this is a pretty cool thing we've cultivated. Um, this, this thing called black hat. Cause if I look at places like DEF CON, like, I have no problem with, you know, Jeff Moss and you know the people, but I am always worried that they're too focused on the individual issues and not what's going on in the industry. Like <clears throat> they're not focused on the business of breaking into business or, you know, business of protecting business. It's more like, Hey, what kind of cool hacker thing did I just find on the weekend? And I but that, that's the talk. mission,
1: but that's the mission, right? So mm-hmm. it lo- is black but- hats trying to drive the conversation. One of the arguments that we have <laughs> on every one of our review board calls is, is this the right level? Is this the right threat, thread or direction? Mm-hmm. And it like, it's fiercely argued. And I don't think folks in the community and in the industry really appreciate how very difficult those arguments are. And we're making really difficult decisions. Like, that there's a custodianship again where we're trying to make the right calls. I, w- there. I wouldn't
0: wish it on my worst enemy in some ways, but so on the RSA route, I mean that's that should be blackout on steroids, but it somehow just totally misses the mark for me.
1: It's, it's by the vendors for the vendors, right? <laughs> and so it, it, it's, it's it's it's
0: only the circus.
1: All right, uh, 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 let's, let's frame what the demographic focus there is, right? So so you've got a bunch of vendors that are paying. By the way, if you ever looked at the sponsorship packages and how unbelievably expensive they are, we're yeah. talking about you know getting a small booth. You're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars for the booth. Then you've got all these really expensive nerds and salespeople that are going to fly in. You've got your product managers. You've got your senior executive team. They're going to be meet, meeting with analysts. You're going to be gathering leads and creating a marketing pipeline funnel and sales opportunity feed. And then you've got you know timed events you've got presentations all these things are happening what what if you think about it in a corporate sense it is a very dense center of gravity on the business transactional side and black hat isn't quite the same because it's focused on the technical delivery the safety of the conversation and doing business with discomforting topics
0: (laughs) i i really do enjoy rsa but it is to me it's a it's a show it's it's a it, it's people, a trade show. People people refer to it as a show, but I, I mean kind of like going to the movies or something. It's like it's almost just pure entertainment to, to some degree. <laughs> yes, some work does get done there, but it's not like Black Hat. Black Hat is like all work for me. I, I'm like busy the entire time. I don't have any time. Where, where I find myself like <clears throat> people will message me like, hey, where are you? A lot at RSA. Sure, sure. Because they're bored because there isn't a thing going on. You know, there isn't a, a set, you know, hey, everyone is doing this thing at this time. you you got to be here at this time. It's I don't know. It's very different.
1: I feel the same way about when people talk about different cities. How would you describe Dallas? And the only way to answer that question is based upon who you know and what parts of town you're in and what you're into and how you enjoy your time in any city. And yeah. so Dallas, for 15 people, could all be different. And it could be that way for any show or any conference. There's, you know, we as the industry has evolved... You know, folks talk about how RSA is RSA, and Black Hat's the new RSA, and Def Con's the new Black Hat, and B-Sides is the new Def Con, and I don't, I don't know that I necessarily agree with that, but I think the population of folks, the work that they're doing, which is evolving, and their experience and their recollection, and not revisionist history, but what they're what they're experiencing as the conference and their careers both evolve, looks very different. And so Black Hat, I imagine, is a higher density population of folks that you have a different connection to, and the types of business that you are in. That's true. Is going to be anchored differently, and RSA never reached that saturation for you.
0: Yeah, true, true, true. <clears throat> I, I do know people who just stay stay in one conference room the entire time. They're at RSA, uh, RSA basically. Like I've had that
1: experience I, at every conference, more, like more all than over than the I, world. Like I've I've had that experience, and it does happen. But if your function is dealing with the diligence, or listen, we're going through joint development stuff on a handful of things. We're going to talk roadmap. That we're going to talk about. We've got this feature design that we think is going to address this problem, and now we're market testing it with our thought partners and our customers and our prospects there's really dynamic problems being solved there and it's exhausting and it's important work.
0: I just don't see research coming out of it.
1: So, I, but that's because your passion's research. That's what I'm driving <laughs> towards is what you care most about is going to be served differently. Enough.
0: Well, um, partially I care that the researchers are doing research there. I don't necessarily need to watch the research. I can, I can get them in a talk track or whatever on the side. But then that leads to interesting business conversations. You know what I mean? Like, that's how we start. Like, oh, what are you working on? Or what's the most recent blah, 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 blah. And then you move into the, okay, what are you working on? And I, think you're natural, you? And
1: I think your natural cognitive bias is going to be passionate about research. That's eh, part that's of where that's anchored. And then I would ask for uh, mm-hmm. demographic and customer appropriate conversations where you walk onto the RSA show floor. Well, what do you do? I'm an EDR. Well, what the hell's that? Uh, It depends on which market definition you're going to use. And they're going to start talking about O-Day or breaking research. Like this audience is not going to use, like not going to get it. They're not right. And so I don't think it's audience appropriate at RSA and it's focused on back to the table. So
0: it's not necessarily a cognitive bias per se, although I'm not you that
1: like what you're looking for is not going to be satisfied. I'm not
0: saying I don't have one. I am. I I actually agree. I do, but I am saying that on the whole, you're not going to see the same things. It's correct. It's it, it.
1: it's a missional difference.
0: Yeah, it really is. It's fundamentally different. I just get a very different vibe from black hat. Um, and I, We need both. Yeah. And we need yeah. both. Yeah. It's I go to parts both. Of the industry. I go to both. Yeah. Unavoidably. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. <laughs> How far down
1: that rabbit hole did we go? <laughs>
0: <laughs> just far enough. I think we just <laughs> bounced right off the ground. Okay. So, um, I think I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Um, I want to talk about your time at Heroku because, First of all, I got a very funny story about you and Heroku. Uh, I'm not sure I'm allowed to tell it, but.
1: uh, Is there a red flag I should throw? uh, How
0: about this? Just start doing this if I start saying stuff out of school, like that time I almost took down Heroku. Uh, (laughs) But didn't, but didn't take down Heroku. That's great. Uh, I think it's a great
1: story. I think it's important limitation and architectural design in the platform. But yeah, we can talk about that. Where, where, uh, Where do you want to go?
0: Okay. Actually, let's do that because it's a fun story. Let's do it. Uh, it's a fun story. So, oh God, this is probably three, four years back or something. I don't know, whenever you were there, whenever that was. Um, yeah,
1: two and a half, three years ago. Yeah,
0: yeah something like that. And uh, you were over at my house one day and um, I can't even remember why. they just shooting the shit or something, just hanging out.
1: I come by all the time and there's always this, hey, I got to show you what I'm working on. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I want to show you something. Or actually, I don't even think it was quite that way. I think it was like, what? I don't think I've ever seen a demo of what you're building. I'm like, what? How is that possible? Let me just show you. You know, kind of one of those. Yeah. So I start showing you, and um, and you're, I, I'm like, what? What should I run this on? And, I, and you're like, oh, I don't know. I'll use Heroku. I'm like, okay, great.
1: You run pointed it. at HerokuApp.com. Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah, that's exactly what you looked at. I think maybe that maybe that's exactly what I. Was so
1: thinking. the Heroku platform. For those that don't know Heroku, um, I'm going to joke for the hacker community, call it remote code execution as a service. <laughs> but for the sake of argument, what this is is a hosting platform that you. You build all your custom code for your website. So, Mm -hmm. for instance, during the Super Bowls, um, the Patriots would move their entire web infrastructure onto Heroku so it could scale dynamically. And it's a lot cheaper to do that on a dynamic platform. So Heroku's platform is a service that runs folks' software. Heroku app is part of what we call the common runtime. And so it was not a single-tenant type of isolated security architecture. It was designed to be multi-tenant. So think like... Apartment complex or hotel, like there's lots of folks on those different boxes that we're running. We call them dinos, but we've run worker apps of people's applications side by side with. You could have some kid in college and some major e commerce platform and some pharmaceutical research firm all side by side on the same machine. So multi tenancy is terrifying. And you're like, <laughs> what should I look at? It? Like, hey, here, let's just do Heroku app. And so you throw Heroku app in. And <laughs> what you start doing. Say like part of your platform is making calls to like listen. I have all this DNS history, so I know all the domain subdomains that have been on the Heroku app, and you start calling them all, uh, every single one of them, every single one of them,
0: at the same time. Now
1: Heroku, because it have that's part of the free runtime <laughs> tier, what it starts doing is because it's free, your app so Trey's app is going to be asleep. Uh, Wiley Coyote's Acme app is asleep, and when you call it, it's basically going to receive that request go spin up a dino that worker that's sleeping because it's a cost control measure because it's a free tier. And so Wiley Cody comes online and Trey, Trey App comes online. all You're waking up all of the dead apps. <laughs> like you press the button and reanimated every dead soul on the internet. And I immediately like, I'm like, uh, it just struck me what you're doing. Yeah, like, what are you doing? Exactly? And it, I, I, think, I think it was like, you know, just a few seconds that I start seeing like what you're scanning. And I, I have this moment of clarity. I'm like, <laughs> I need your Wi-Fi password. Like, why? <laughs> like I've got, I, so I jump on Slack and I check with the team and I'm like, Hey, come around time team. How's it looking? And I'm like strangely, our utilization has gone up like 70 X. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, like they're standing up incident command. There's all these things going ballistic. <laughs> Robert, I need you to stop what you're doing right now. You're like, I don't know how. It's just, you know, and you are animating all dead souls on the planet simultaneously. And so I think you reach out to Lex yeah. like like yeah. red phone, like unplug everything. <laughs> That was a very, like, I, I imagine I may get a call from a sales lawyer saying, oh, uh, there's a little bit of an invoice we need to talk. About. I don't know what's coming. Like, <laughs> that, that may have been a thing. But th- th- this is part of the power of common runtime infrastructures of how that works. But that was, that was exciting.
0: You, uh, you, you called uh, somebody, um, I can't remember who it was, but you had him on FaceTime at one point and you're like, okay, I'm here with this guy. I forget who it was. It was probably Jamie Arlen. I think it was, yeah. And he's like, what the hell are you doing with him? Like, don't let him touch anything. What did he do? <laughs> he just sent a couple of requests to everybody. Yeah. yeah. So the the second part of that story is, if I had taken down Heroku, what would have happened?
1: I don't know that you would have taken down Heroku. You would have taken down EC2 in a number of regions. Uh, I believe EC2 at the time, or sorry, uh, the common runtime time was principally running in US East 1. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those of you that work in engineering, don't ever base anything in U.S. East 1. That's where all the goblins on the internet live. Um, <laughs> what happens is so we ha- we had some fun scenarios where um, part of running a common runtime in and free infrastructure, you're going to see all kinds of abuse scenarios. And so part of running a common run on time, so sec- like the United States section code, U.S. 230 is where like, this is where uh, Facebook and content moderation is a thing. But you still have a duty to police on some level trying to deal with, Obviously, bad content. Well, AWS has a duty to police how their infrastructure is being used. They've got a lot of guidance on that. Well, some of the activity coming off the you, uh, the Amazon Common Runtime or the Heroku Common Runtime trips those alerts. And so they start autobot banning these things. Well, Heroku's infrastructure was designed as a platform that folks talk about DevOps and SecDevOps and all this ops automation well, if we have an unhealthy system, we evacuate that host and reinstantiate. And so we're going to scale laterally faster than all your bot automation can. And we literally have, on several occasions, we, the Royal Weave, they have sank entire Amazon regions by saturating and dealing with their auto-defense bots. Our auto-scale bots came back online. And so you kill it here. It's like, you can see where these things just expand and contract. Mm-hmm. What would have happened is you would have sank an entire AWS data center and region. Like, without, without a doubt, Like the (laughs) partnership between Heroku and Amazon is a beautiful thing. Um, They would have this new feature they'd come to market with like, Hey, we're going to make sure you're aware of this and we're going to make sure that you can't turn this on because you would destroy it. And so we had to build a lot of automation. It was by force of relationship. It was the not invented here syndrome. We had to do it because it didn't make sense. Internet scale was different at Amazon. It was or at Heroku. It was a terrifying place. So humbling. And you sit down and have a conversation like, look, I don't know how this works. And I'm talking to someone that, like core contributor to say Python or to MySQL, Right. Like, and so there, there was just this safety for humility saying, I I don't understand this. Like I see this, what am I missing? And so they'll take the next two or three steps and it's your job to go do the homework. But it was a beautiful place to work. Terribly humbling. I think it took me six months to figure out what the hell was happening on any level. And the next thing I'm sitting in a room with auditors explaining to the best of my understanding. And then the head of engineer, which by the way is here in Austin now. So John uh, comes in and he's like, Trey, yeah, That was mostly correct, but I'm like, well, how would you explain it? He's like, well, to be honest, my understanding is not current because I know we've had a couple of commits and projects that have changed. You have the gestalt of kind of a sense of how the whole thing works, but how it's actually being done now may have changed the last 10 minutes because you have so many teams Mm -hmm. running this infrastructure. It, It was unbelievable. It was a beautiful experience.
0: Well, I mean, that was the one time I almost took down the internet. There's truly, there's, yeah, been, there's been several. I'm there, sure. There's yeah. been there's been several. Yeah. Um, so, what was your actual title when you were there?
1: I was uh, head of trust, um, VP and head of trust, and then I was CISO for the Hoku platform. Uh, Salesforce reorgs things like every four months, and so my I had many many titles, but I was the CISO for the Hoku platform. Um, I worked at the office of the CISO. So
0: was that your first full bird CISO job at that point?
1: Yeah, I guess so. Um, I would argue I carried the CISO badge without the CISO title at Black Hat. Sure. With the network of the infrastructure, but yeah. Yeah,
0: For obvious reasons.
1: Yeah. Proper full bird CISO at Heroku.
0: So for those who are not aware of what a CISO's job is, (laughs) how would you describe the job? Taking out the trash. (laughs)
1: Uh, Chief Information Security Officer, um, And the head of trust concept, what we're driving for, it's so hard to put into a box. You're trying to honor the commitments you've made to a customer. So, this deals with everything from uh, your compliance endorsements, like earning a compliance body like PCI or HIPAA or ISO or any of these things, it's like adopting a puppy you never get rid of it. So once once you've achieved that, you've got to honor it and keep that up. It's so a part of this deals with hygiene. You're patching your change control processes, your logging, your telemetry, your monitoring. So in my organization, I had, of course, compliance. We had application security and platform security. We had security operations. We had platform tooling. Um, gosh, like these are all the moving components that go into a cybersecurity program. And so everything from engineering and design and ops and design and reviews to the actual maintenance and then the audit and compliance infrastructure.
0: Would you recommend it to a friend? Because I hear a lot of... I have also been ACSO before. Um, different sorts of environments. Um, I, but I've heard a lot of more professional where they've been doing it for 20 years and that's what they do. Like I've skipped around yep. and done a lot of things. Sure. Um, but would you say that it is a job that is... Um, a sort of a tenable no pun intended job um is it one that you can actually hang your hat on and have as a profession for 20 years or something i don't see a lot of cso staying cso's at least not in the same company like they'll bail every 18 months like what's what let's, do you think let's, about let's the... decompose
1: that just a little bit because yeah. i think there's a couple moving pieces that are sailing there um when talking to folks that want to be a cso and maybe ready to be a cso i think it's important to be aware. Um, there's different types of CISOs, and the needs of a CISO by a company are going to vary based, based upon their stage, right? So like the smart framework, you know, startup, um, turnaround, accelerating, rapid, like, rapid growth. Uh, those types of organizational statuses matter. Uh, have you achieved compliance? Are you a zero to one CISO, or are you gonna launch the program? Are you in hypergrowth growth and prepared to scale an organization and deal with the hypergrowth of a security organization sympathetically with IT and engineering as they scale aggressively? Are you prepared to support go to market at scale? Are you a CISO that runs large organizations and can cost optimize and drive down the cost of operations to improve margin on those things in preparation for capital events? Are you a turnaround artist that can come into a troubled ship organization, a wartime CISO, and work with that? And so uh, for the sake of argument, like CEOs, you don't see a whole lot of CEOs that are in the same seat for 20 years. I mean, like the Brad Arkins and folks that have been CISOs for multi-decades, Andy Ellis, like there aren't a lot of those. But the folks that come in and if you think of it as a baton relay and your job, some folks come in there the chiropractor and they're going to make some difficult adjustments. But even adjustments you, and you mentioned Andy
0: hurt. Ellis by name. I mean, even he hasn't stayed in that job for that long. He was long. the
1: CISO at Akamai, I believe, for 20 or 25 years. Was it that, yes, uh, sir. It couldn't have been that Unequivocally long.
0: Unequivocally so. Really? Well, he just recently left, I thought.
1: Correct. Yeah. He went to Orca and he's doing some advisory stuff, okay. writing another book. There's only a handful of folks that yeah, have been. Yeah. I mean, like,
0: that's that he definitely qualifies as long term, but... Almost nobody is. Um, it's, a, it's a vanishingly rare thing. And Akamai is kind of a, a weird place to have been there that long. It, it's, I mean, I could see it because it's it's more planetary
1: scale network that's going to have a lot of evolution. Like,
0: yeah, but it's more pass through. It's it's different if you're a retailer, you know. Or uh, I would
1: argue that timing and preparation and your personal posture and relationship to the business is going to make a lot of difference. And so, are you prepared to be this kind of CISO today? Is your life chapter? So I'm I'm joining as a CISO uh, in a couple of weeks. I think this will be coming out like days before I start, Um, and I've shopped for a long time to find the right next seat, the right next move. And I've got little kids. I'm going to be traveling a lot, but I'm going to be working with a pretty choosy. You want to do something that you believe is going to have maximum effect and impact and this is a missional thing for me it's yeah it's what I do and I care deeply about it but the balance and opportunity for business impact and strategy for marketing to engage the community and to lead a security and IT organization it's like I'm I'm fired up for this next role.
0: Okay so what do you feel about technical versus non-technical CISOs because there's always this kind of Oh, man, know, balance man. or, or right. fight. Well, we're going to yeah. grab the lightning bolt here. So, well, some people are like, you shouldn't be technical. That's what your team is for. You're more business focused. And other people are like, well, if you don't know what your team is doing, how the hell are you going to manage them? You know? There's a lot of business strategy
1: that goes into the question of, is domain expertise a good thing or a bad thing? So if you look at Ford or Toyota or some of the Drucker like management models, The idea of being able to manage and support and lead a team may or may not have to do with domain expertise. And so there's virtue to that argument. I'm also going to advocate that just because you're not writing exploit or uh, exploits are sitting in IDA or tearing apart Wireshark uh, packet capture doesn't mean you're not prepared to be a CISO. So it depends on what you're doing, what your organization's doing, and what the day job looks like. There's other forms of technical There are folks that do magic in Excel and are going to spend a lot more time working with finance and a bunch of other go-to-market decisions that are going to inform very technical things on the business side. There's folks that are going to be more on the, my backgrounds in systems and networks, not in applications. I learned AppSec through the evolution of my career, but I wouldn't consider myself an application security person at all. That's arguable.
0: That's weird to hear that from you. Right? Right. I don't because really, you know me and that's
1: like we spend our time together in AppSec.
0: Yeah, but come on.
1: Uh, I'm, I'm looking into the abyss and saying I know people that are brilliant in these different Yeah, areas.
0: but there's a different... Mm. All right, this s- is set, that set that aside.
1: <laughs> set that aside. Set that aside, right? Set that aside. So for the sake of argument, I think that technical CISOs are better grounded and are going to be more higher quality leaders, more believable leaders for the organizations that are running if they've got the right grounding in technology. That said... I also know that in the boardroom and in the QBR, working with the C staff inside of the operating company, remember I'm coming from private equity, so I've watched a lot of CISOs and helped hire and transition 40 or 50 CISOs in the last two and a half years. We'll get to that in And a so, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll go there. But I highlight that to say this. When you make a CFO uncomfortable, I'm not going to disrespect all CFOs. I'm going to disrespect all CFOs. They go to bean counter mode and they start tearing into spreadsheets and talking about specific arcane tax code and other GL things. And when you make a CISO, a technical CISO, uncomfortable, they're going to retreat into technology. And when they start speaking Radio Shack to business folks, they don't give a rip. They tune out. And that's how a lot of CISOs wind up under the CIO or CTO. Like they don't understand the business. They can't communicate with us. You deal with that problem. And so part of the blessing and the curse that comes with being highly technical is your default comfortable place is to go back to the technology as opposed to be present at the table because you don't feel like you deserve to be there. And that's a really difficult monkey to get off your back. Mm -hmm. And so I I think that you can come to a CISO role with a variety of experiences and be phenomenal at it, but you're going to have more to do to win the hearts and minds and following of your security organization.
0: Yeah, that's a good answer. Um, I generally prefer technical CISOs um, mostly because they are better at understanding actual risk. However, they go. are not good at translating that into monetary risk. And frankly, what the CFO is the chief risk officer of the company. Absolutely. If you don't have a CRO, yeah. Well, okay, and fine. And risk in the treasury and what. Yeah, yeah there's if, layers to this. Okay, fine. Of finance it well, depends sure. on where the CRO is Check. located as well. You know, that I've seen them actually underneath. But. But anyway, we're talking about approximately the same people. They are the ones who run and own all the risk. So if I'm a CISO and I can't speak dollars and cents, which is the, that is the the language of risk, then I just sound like a little kid kind of like playing with my toys. You know, I just don't sound right to them.
1: To speak the language of business. You you can't go into the boardroom or you can't go into the C staff without being able to speak the language of the business. And I'm going to argue the majority of CISOs haven't developed that highly technical skill. <laughs> and so it's not the same as writing exploit code or writing a bash script or being able to tear apart a PCAP, but it is a highly technical thing that we've not respected. Like even on our, like, I don't think you're on the last, no, you're not on the, um, the, the CFP team right now at Black Hat. So on the last call, like we need to see more technical work. I'm like, yo, there like there's more to being technical than just what we've all always fetishized in the CFP process. And that, that like, again, this is a massive rabbit trail, but, I think we need to dignify and honor the technical chops required to work with the GC in legal with the CFO and to speak to your point, if we're going to tear apart transforms and monetary analysis to do Bayesian and Monte Carlo transforms and get to quantitative risk and to derive a cash exposure and inform our risk trade-offs and to prioritize our security program against that requires a lot more maturity than a lot of our CISOs today are prepared for.
0: So you bring up a very good point. Um, we didn't used to have like a defense track. But we didn't have it. No. And then we have it um, at Black Hat. And so why not have a the business of security track? Like this is the hardcore business aspect of security. Like, yes, there's the exploit tracks. That's super important. It's critical, actually, to getting the security done right. But also being able to communicate, and not just in words, but also the actual technical... Aspect of communicating like there are certain things that boards need to see in very specific ways or certain Regulatory requirements. You can't just walk in with a spreadsheet. You know, you have to have done this you Sounds know I mean?
1: a lot like the CISO track last year at Black Hat um, Yeah, <laughs> we, but we, we pulled some of that but to your point what you're describing is mini Metricon, which is alongside RSA Ciricon the Society for Information Risk Analysts. There's a population of folks doing this work. Okay, we should bring some of that over privacy interestingly Privacy engineering doesn't sound fascinating, but everyone cares about privacy. There is mm-hmm. a mathematical aspect of privacy that gets into entropy and can you reconstruct an identity based upon pseudonymized or true anonymized data? Like that there's a real quantitative method to that. The quantitative method for scoring risk, there's a population of folks doing it. And I think more and more people are interested in it. I would love to see it a black hat. Because, is well, it audience appropriate is the question I'm going to come back to.
0: Um, for a smaller audience. Yes. Um, and it wouldn't be the CISOs. This is for the people trying to get into the CISO track. This is all the I know, a managers. I think more CISOs
1: they need believe are going to want to be a part of that. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. This is where the game's going. This is where the game's going.
0: Okay. So you moved on to going the investment route, um, which actually makes you uniquely qualified to talk about both the business side and the technology side.
1: Nothing we're going to talk about constitutes investment advice. (laughs)
0: Um, I'm going to trade on this immediately. I don't know about the rest of the audience. Uh, Okay, so obviously there's things you cannot talk about and I'm not going to push you on the things you can't talk about. But obviously there are things you can talk about. So let's talk about the things you can talk about. So first of all, what's it like working for a fund that has to basically kind of dotted line into all these Porcos? Like how does that, how does that work? What's the job like?
1: Man. Uh, so I was at a top 10 private equity firm. Uh, I was the deputy CISO. Um, my boss and I shared a lot of responsibilities. He managed up and across. We both managed across and down. Um, and you would describe me as a CISO of CISOs. And so we had, 80, 90 plus companies, uh, 100 billion in assets. That's with a B. So massive, massive, super fascinating because you're working with folks that are fighting the good fight. These are CISOs that are in the trenches doing the work. And so my job is to show up and tell them how to do their job. Not so much. (laughs) I'm I'm there to partner with them. And I've got a fiduciary duty, a, a duty of care and a duty of loyalty or yeah, to think about and process risk to the business, to apply security standard and to help both sides communicate better so the operators and the CISO back to the board and inform are the right things getting done Are the right things being prioritized are we investing appropriately in the security programs or across between security and engineering to our prior conversation on should we be patching or not um, amazing and terrifying so I got to help stand up Uh, literally dozens of risk committees. Uh, I got to hire and help transition across uh, a lot of CISOs, CISOs leaving organically or um, through acquisitions, integrations, tuck ins, like there's a lot of program uh, stuff. And then you think about the dynamics of what it takes to, if if a private equity firm is buying your company, it's not that it's a troubled asset, but there is a hypothesis. And so we may see uh, three more companies bought right behind it and tucked into you. And so you had 99 problems. And I feel bad for you, son. But here's three companies, three new seams, four other EDRs, all these other things. And then none of them talk. Mm -hmm. Your surface area just got exponentially larger. Your staffing has not radically altered. Hearts, minds, transitions, all these things are happening. And how are we going to, one, time to market, value and synergy creation, and then at the same time, risk reduction. Terrifyingly difficult job being a CISO in a private equity uh, world. And these are, these are capital realities we all deal with. Um, I got to work with diligence. I got to work through a lot of incident response um, and in partnership with all of these executives. And so part of it was a real blessing in that some companies, you only get a couple strikes in board presentations. I had the opposite. I had relationships with the board, so I misspoke or did something wrong. They had enough mutual trust in me to where I got to get coaching and get feedback or laughed out of room saying, okay, that clearly came out wrong (laughs) or you're crossing streams and thinking of this other company, Acme Corp, like go straighten your stuff out and come back. And so I got to do a lot of these things. I also got to watch some amazing CISOs and my boss, Adrian was a phenomenal mentor. I learned a lot from him and uh, Chase was absolutely phenomenal to work with. We, We had an amazing team and it was an honor and a privilege to work with this space, but I also got to see the cold side of the business transactions and decisions and, the economic realities that we have to work against and some real fascinating constraints. So, um, I'm excited about moving away from having 90 companies and 90 executive teams and all that to think about. <laughs> so think about one, yeah. but I missed the building. So sure. that that's where I'm going to, but it, it was a fa- fascinating vantage point. And the folks that work in the private equity community, you're not going to see them out speaking because they can't speak. They can't talk. They're all going to be from a risk management and I'm talking legal and PR standpoint. They say something and the SEC or anyone else could at any point confuse that as investment advice or an advisor or a position on a fund or a company or anything else. So you're going to see a lot of containment there. Um,
0: Definitely buying some stocks tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I said anything with any specificity there, but yeah, so, it, it's an amazing vantage point. So from that vantage point, you got to see individual CISOs as well and their styles, their... Uh their warts, you know, how well they did within we're the college. We're all on a journey. We, how, we all are. Well, so, yeah. well, but how they also communicated with the board. Sure. And because you get to see both the board and them. And
1: hey, Robert, what did this person mean when they said that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, here, like they, they're, they're right. Like so a lot of that back in the w- conversation, too.
0: Were there any characteristics of, you know, like, this made a good CISO for these companies? Or I, I see this trend and CISOs I know are no, we're not going to be successful? Like, were there kind of big takeaways?
1: It a soundbite. Listen, building a security program is highly technical and doing what you do on the back end is highly technical. When you move into board facing work and working with the C staff, the operating executives at that company, you're, you're managing a lot of relationships. This is non-deterministic engineering. You're building trust. You're communicating, you're managing expectations, you're forward looking, you're making trade offs, difficult trade offs. And there's a lot more accounting than you'd ever believe. You're spending a lot more time on budgets and planning and headcount strategy and uh, shifts due to the market or the investment hypothesis or all these other things that CISO's not regularly under the tent for those different discussions. And so your ability to perceive and to cultivate options, how many CISOs do you know that get real upset when they don't get the funding for what they wanted?
0: Pretty much every one of them.
1: Right. As opposed to, listen, with optionality, here are the things that I can't imagine a scenario has to go below the line, not going to be funded. These are the things that have to be dealt with, and here's the min viable on each of those. So zero basis budgeting. Here's what we're going to deal with.
0: Is this their fault? Are they not communicating it properly, or is it a fault of the the mechanisms for even explaining what these problems actually are? Yes, or they just don't matter enough.
1: All or? of it. So one, uh, there's no. Because they're at the
0: kids' table right now, and it's it's kind of embarrassing, frankly. <sighs>
1: I don't want to acknowledge or agree with that statement. Let let, let me frame this differently.
0: Let me tell you why I'm saying that. Okay. When I talk to people who are on boards and they have come through the CEO track, right? They're like, when people were CEOs, that's one conversation in particular. that really stands out in my mind. When I was a CEO, you know, like security people would come in and I would, they're always so excited about whatever they're working on and, you know, give them a pat on the back. You're doing a great job and get the hell out. Right. And I thought it was kind of fun and funny and and Okay. But when I became a board member, I wanted them out of the room as fast as I possibly could. Like, like, Give them like a half an hour to give their thing, and then we'll spend the rest of the day on sales and marketing. They're
1: usually at the end, or they'll do a special session afterwards because it didn't make the cut line.
0: Right. right. That, I mean, that it, if there is the definition of the kid's table, <laughs> that's, that's kind of what I'm getting at.
1: One, I'm going to argue and advocate that it's impressively difficult for the board to get all the right stuff in. Think about every company you've started or every strategy session off-site you've been a part of. Did you get the right things onto the agenda and did you get across all the important stuff? The answer is never yes. You never got it all done. And the risk management landscape for the board on how to talk about cyber risk and what the SEC is mandating, what the FTC is concerned about, and the personal liability of the fiduciary, the, the, the corporate director, executive or non-executive director, They have a duty of care and loyalty, and they've got to understand some of the cyber stuff, and they're also terrified because your vast majority of your board members come from sales, come from marketing, come from finance or legal. They don't speak the cyber stuff. Some of them fancy themselves technologists because they've worked in IT or in the Silicon Valley world, but they're not technologists. And so what, to your prior point, can we describe in dollars and cents the exposure, the likelihood, the probabilities? Can we defend them if we pressure test them? My brother, I know a handful of people that can defend those numbers if you press them. Mm. And they worked closely with the Hubbard Decision Institute, Richard Sireson, like that, that population of folks. There's, you and I probably could name five people each that could argue P and <laughs> in confidence intervals on any of these things. It doesn't exist in, in the cyberspace. So, to your point, that can you distill it? Problem. Can you distill it back to business terms? Can you put together a hip, hypothesis and a business case? If that person rattles for too long, we're now aware of a bunch of things that have to be addressed. You and I could not sit down and articulate and defend what the standard duty of care should fi- of cyber should be. I think we'd arrive at a pretty close thing, and I think cyber insurance has simplified this. But if I were to give you the red list of like, look, we will not get insurance underwriting if we do not achieve these outcomes, patching at this level with this exposure in this timeline, no end of life, MFA everywhere, PAM, logging, 24 by 7 monitoring, a population of operation things you and I would agree with, That list right there, one, the board got lost on two acronyms minimum and is now worried how much the stuff's going to cost. And they have no sense of it because it's not our board deck. What it takes to brief the board in a meaningful way that empowers them and helps them inform risk tradeoffs and priority. It's not an art. It's not a science. I'm telling you, it's terrifying. It's a hard thing to do. And this has not been solved in the CISO community. If you go to the National Association of Corporate Directors, the NACD, and go through cybersecurity training, here's a number of things that you need to know about. It's education for the board members, but there's no common reporting structure on what goes to the board. I'm expecting cyber insurance to put forward, here's what we care about, and here's what you need to be asking about, and here's whether or not we're going to write you based upon these questions. Get this to your board briefing. Until we have that, I don't know that the majority of CISOs have a shot at being successful or being heard
0: Okay, so maybe they belong at the kids' table. And what I mean by that is they tuck in underneath the CFO, who translates what needs to happen in dollars and cents only.
1: All right, you've raised something that I think is super important. It's not orthogonal. It's probably parallel. Uh, There's the age-old conversation of where should the CISO report? It shouldn't be under someone...
0: I don't mean report. I just mean
1: they should be partnering deeply with the CFO and with the general counsel to organize a meaningful update and to make sure it's grounded. Yes. And those pieces need to be presented in concert with.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: I fully agree with that. And again, CISOs generally are not trained in, listen, here's how you prepare for a board briefing. The same way CISOs are not traded. Here's how we prepare a budget at this company. Here's how you agree on what's going to be above and below the line of the priorities and strategy for the year with these partner teams and there's a top down budget and there's a bottom up budget and here's how we consolidate and here's the horse trading that happens every company does it differently.
0: Mhm.
1: No these like again it's a multifaceted that sounds,
0: that sounds bad. There needs to be some standardized. Well, I mean okay, there should be a standardized way to do this. We should all as industry come together and go, okay. We're here's- moving that direction. We're going to we? get there.
1: I I, I, it's, it's going to get easier. It's going to get easier. But this goes back to your question. Can people be career CISOs? The best CISOs I know, and I'll bet this is similar for you. The best CISOs I know are very comfortable with the gray and with their lack of, I think the answer is this, and I'm going to get you a better answer on this, and here's what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. And they're very comfortable not giving a wishy-washy answer, but framing the problem space for someone asking a question.
0: Okay. So back to my question, when you, when you, when you look at all these CISOs across the board, is there a, these guys are going to be doing extremely well. Is there a, is there an easy answer? Like I'm going to see that person. I'm going, yeah, they're, they're going to do well in that role.
1: The folks that have spent a lot of energy cultivating relationships, both with their peer operating executives and with the board are going to do well because they've they've invested in that trust culture. They understand, they've empowered and I'm going to argue the ones that have stood up a meaningful risk committee. CISOs don't patch machines, CISOs don't manage firewalls, CISOs don't build baseline images for EC2. They're not building the container that's being orchestrated in Kubernetes. They're not doing any of those things. They're an orchestra conductor that's managing tension between all these different groups and so standing up a risk committee to manage governance. And the process whereby the company accepts or declines risk or decides as a group how to treat that risk, those CISOs are the ones that have the best shot at succeeding and s- surviving longer.
0: I like that. <clears throat> that actually makes sense to me. Kind of reminds me when, when I very, very, very first started getting uh, started in product management. Um, they had this big committee thing. Where we're supposed to go and like present to like 12 vice presidents or whatever it was. I, had this, And yeah. it, like, this is never going to work. This is, I'm never, ever going to make it through this meeting unscathed. Yeah. Yeah. So what I had to do is ahead of time, go to every single one of those people, send a test
1: balloon, trouble balloon in front of each of them, get their feedback and right. buy in, get the buy in yes.
0: and they're all invested. Now they all want to seem smart that they're backing me up in the meeting. I show up and I'm the only person who's ever sailed through that meeting. because I'm willing to reach out. That's
1: non-deterministic engineering. Mm. That's politics.
0: Mm, That's politics. Agreed.
1: Cyber folks, security folks for the most part, don't like sales and don't like politics. Like it's kind of a unilateral thing. The bottom line is you're engineering relationships and outcomes in a business process.
0: So you'd push away from the technical CISO and more to a political CISO.
1: I think you need all of those things. These are all tools.
0: Yeah. But, but if you had to pick one,
1: I think someone that knows how to operate the business.
0: Yeah. Okay. Actually, I like that answer. It's the first time I've heard anyone say truly a business context would win, and um, and you have some insights into that because normally it's like I am a technical CISO or I am a business CISO, and therefore this is my opinion. But you have a unique way of being able to see what has worked across multiple enterprises. So it's
1: I've stolen great ideas from really smart people, and I hope to do right by them. <laughs>
0: yeah, well, amen. Okay, so instant response. How how does that work in a company like that where you're stratified, you're kind of involved in the company, kind of not, there's a duty of care issue. Like, how does that all work? And I don't need to know specifics. Yeah, no. Uh,
1: So no intellectual property here. Um, Think about any generic company. So we're talking about Acme Corp and classical incident response. You'd have your incident response plan. It's been reviewed. It's been put in front of the auditor. Uh, You've got uh, folks that have reviewed it. So you're going to press play and run this playbook. You're going to activate your command channel. You're going to do all these things. If you've got outside investors, fiduciary partners that have a level of risk where they want you to play to your strengths and to officiate the process, the world has changed with cyber insurance. Once we know we've got a live wire, we have a reasonable suspicion or belief that a material event has transpired and there's going to be notification timers and the privacy world is activated. There's all these things that have changed in the last five years. You're going to engage general counsel who's going to engage outside counsel which should be impaneled on your cyber insurance policy outside counsel to protect privilege will activate under tripartite agreement. Uh, you're forensic partner. That's going to come in and drive instant response. Your CISO is quarterbacking this process and odds are your fiduciary partners, investors, private equity firms going to ride along with that. And the way I would talk to my CISOs that I served was listen, I don't want your job. And if you're doing a terrible job, my life goes to hell. I'm here as a thought partner, but the biggest part of my job was making sure that folks were getting rest and they were taking care of their teams. Uh, there's, there's a transition that happens from a small company where it's, you know, if you go fast, go alone, and to enterprises and large investment vehicles. If you're going big, you go together. And so, what I would say is, you want to cultivate that process, you want to play to the experts. How many instant responders and how many times at Black Hat have you heard someone that has no legal bearing or standing or office or responsibility say breach? No, like I'm not qualified to use that word in a sentence. (laughs) I don't think my general (laughs) counsel wants to be, and we're going to, uh, Bob Lord talks about right of boom. So that's the former CISO from Twitter and Yahoo and DNC. I love Bob. One of my favorite things from Bob is talking about right of boom. After you've had a material event, there's a point where the B word breach has been used. Everything there, now we're talking about what's been put in writing and all the stuff that you've said or written will be used against you after discovery and read by someone that's not doing you justice from a virtuous standpoint. When you think about this, you want the decision-making process for whether or not this is a breach and whether or not we're on a timer or a notification process or any of those thresholds de- determining notification, Processes all that stuff that turns into massive liability and litigation potential you want outside counsel to be guiding those processes
0: Do you have a run book or are you using their run book or
1: how does that work? Yes? Like mm, you, it, okay. it, there, there's multiples in play uh, so internally you should have a process for your, your standard like legal is gonna have an opinion what they call an IRP or a the written in incident response playbook what whatever your internal organization is going to call it You've got a run book and so who's allowed to define an incident? Thresholds, communication SLAs, call trees, notification information, all that stuff goes in there. There's a body of detailed runbooks on how you're going to handle certain classes or types of issues uh, ransomware, account compromise, spam, those sorts of things. Um, And then there's a body of things that hopefully in your tabletop exercises you've exercised. All right, we're going to stand up a bridge for program management of the technology aspects of this incident and then the management updates. And ne'er the two shall cross. You don't cross those streams because now executive leadership wants to command and control and we need Radio Shack folks to Radio Shack things and not doing hourly updates. So these are the types of things that go into that plan. Now you're involving outside counsel. They're driving the process and they're responsible for keeping the documentation, all those sorts of things. The handler notes you're managing on a tactical level. And then the forensics firm, this is what they do every day. So... They're literally the experts on here's how we capture, here's the decision-making process, here's how we certify whether or not something's safe or not, what needs to be taken offline. And decision-making, the difficult parts that aren't necessarily in those runbooks is the process where you determine when do we start turning services back online? How do we get to a known safe state and bring the business back online? Those are the hardest things to solve for. That's where a lot of risk lands for the executives. And the CISO needs to have a real good opinion on how to inform that conversation and support the leadership in making those decisions.
0: So I think this goes to what the incentives of a CISO actually are. <clears throat> and I think it's worth spending a little bit of time on this. So you got to see it. You got to see a lot of CISOs. Um, and you'll tell me afterwards who I need a short. Uh, <laughs> never. I mean, I never comment on any of those things. Uh, obviously. Yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> 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 No, but the uh, the true incentives of a ciso, I mean, I feel like when we're when we're talking about a ciso, we're talking about somebody who's going to be in that job for 18 months um whose job is to have one or two big hits, going to be like firewalls and antivirus or something cuz you have to have them for compliance and they might do one or two small things, really no more than 3 though. You don't really need to do sure. more than that sure. to to have a good resume like, "Oh, we did these" And IDS, you know, whatever it is, um, and then don't get breached in your time frame. Um, but if oh, you do on. get breached, but if you do get breached, it's okay because you've only been there, whatever, up to eighteen months. So let's say it's been a year. It's like I've only been here a year. I think
1: OPM changed that threshold to like twenty four months. Yeah, okay. I have no idea how that works. Yeah, I think you push. You think, I you pushed, question. You think to push? I think down? OPM. Yeah, <laughs> oh, maybe. Um. <laughs> let, let, let me challenge your hypothesis, okay. right? So <clears throat> historically. Uh, chief information security person was the the scapegoat, chief scapegoat officer, right? It's kind of the running joke for the CSO. I don't know if I agree with that. <laughs> um, I believe in the resilient enterprise. I believe that the security organization's job is to partner with the business and to help make the business resilient. And so we want to drive down the likelihood of something bad happening to have an informed decision. I don't. We're going to deal with something. Every organization is going to deal with an issue. Are we prepared to receive that? Uh, have we put measures in place to minimize how bad it's going to hurt and have we exercised and organized the muscles and the protocols to recover quickly and improve our posture coming back out of that? I You're don't talking
0: about Andy Ellis. I'm talking about what I'm
1: actual not... CISOs are like. No, I'm not talking about Andy Ellis. Well, I
0: mean, all, everything you just said is going to take me two years to create.
1: Does every chief risk officer get canned uh, if they miss a number?
0: Your chief risk officer, yes, revenue. Canned. I
1: sorry, chief revenue officer, CRO. Your sales. You should, you should get one quarter of leeway. You get a couple quarters. You get a couple quarters.
0: Well, you're on a pip on that second quarter. I mean, right. You better. You, is better is you better. You better be writing your own resume. They're directly responsible and visual. <laughs> Right.
1: But to, to, to wit, if we think of the CISO as a true C executive, you're going to come online and like, like there are tremendous books, and I'll get links to you for the show notes, um, but. Uh, how to nail your next transition? What, your first ninety days. There's a couple of really great Harvard Business Review books on specifically this. The majority of CISOs and the majority of ex, ex, uh, executives and directors and leaders, we spend more time dealing with organizational transitions, reorgs, acquisitions, divestitures, uh, promotions, moves. We don't spend a lot of time as CISOs. We spend all of our time on technology. We spend all of our time on risk. We tend like we spend our time on all these other things. Business executives. MBAs and those spend a lot of time on transformational executive leadership. They're prepared to manage through change. CISOs are actually forcing as change agents a lot of changes and are not organizing how to transition. I would argue that as an executive, any executive coming into a business and we need to think of ourselves as security executives, as this we come in, we put together our learning plan. We learn the business. We're going to socialize ourselves at our plan or a vision and go on a listening tour at the other executives understand how do we fit in what are we doing? What what did our predecessors do well? And how do we optimize? How do we improve? We showcase uh, a roadmap. We get your quick wins in to start building Rolling Thunder to get your fingerprints and cultural updates into the business. You're winning hearts and minds from your organization to your point you have firewall project or whatever those quick wins are going to be, you're going to showcase. And that's part of your roadshow deck. But we're guiding the business through a series of transitions. And so if we think of ourselves as a transformational leader the way that the other executives do, what we're doing is we're, we're receiving and impacting some of this. There's a handful of things. How hard is it to plug in an MDR or to roll out endpoint detection and response technologies? It can be done in days. Onboarding an MDR no. is non-trivial. I'm,
0: I'm, <laughs> yeah, we're, turn, we're, turning it fully on, that's a different story. Sure, sure, sure. And harding the way <laughs> than you, I would expect
1: it. But for the sake of argument, there's a body of these things that... Nothing in security is simple. There is no just. Just is a four letter word, but we have campaigns and missions on things that we're working on and we're partnering with the business and we're betting ourselves into the software planning process and we're working on simplifying. How many companies you know have a singular soft source code management, a singular pipeline, testing pipeline, deploy pipeline, and it's everything simple? Most organizations have
0: well, if Lots. you say enterprise or company, because a lot of small companies have just one. <laughs> right, right. Once again, <laughs> those are easy. not
1: the companies that have real CISOs. <laughs> right. Totally fair. So, to, to wit, I think part of this is the identity crisis of do we think of and treat CISOs as true executives the way the business does? And there's a reason why, to your point, they're not sitting in the the big kids table mm-hmm. and playing with the business the way they should be. Gotta real, earn the seat.
0: It's a real shame, but I think I think what you're saying is doable. We're on a journey. I think it is doable. I just don't think we're we're rapidly enough. Go- I mean, I'm not sure I'm even going to see it in my lifetime. I mean, that's how slow this is I happening. I hope you're wrong. I I really hope I'm wrong too. Um, and not that I'm putting my bet on that, but I, I think what it to happen is we need to see a fundamental shift in technology, not in culture, believe it or not, because the, if the technology cannot support a risk-based approach based on actual revenue, then the CISOs are making it up as they go. And it's always going to be a shit show when they hit the board. I mean, it's going to make their life so much harder. But if they're sitting on good data, defensible data, and they can hand it to the CFO and the CFO is like, yeah, that all makes sense. This is a good bet. This will save us money. Our, the value of the company will go up if we don't have all these liabilities hanging Getting out here.
1: Getting towards value at risk is really the holy grail. There's a handful of companies that are doing great work on that right now. Like, We spent two years looking for a risk quantification engine where we could track and dashboard. A handful of controls across 100 companies mm-hmm. hard to find once you start getting the right demographic or organizational information and business process and what the cost of a outage looks like you start to inform this but we're close and there are technologies that are starting to do it in a useful way so i i don't think that's unattainable and i don't require i don't think it requires the CISO to be highly tactical or no. like statistically minded to get there no no once the we're technology
0: close. exists they can just read it and hand it off to the CFO who goes with a thumbs up. I mean, once you have the thumbs up of the CISO uh, and the CFO at the same time, the board's gonna take that very seriously. Like, oof, you know, like we're. Even if
1: it's not like currency current, I mean, like, forget inflation yeah, or unadjusted, yeah, 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 yeah. but like. Uh, so like Kevin and Denson over at X analytics have done tremendous work on this front I mean, and
0: CFOs are never perfectly accurate when you get a big enough company anyway. So but they control
1: the checkbook. So it's, it's their numbers. Yeah, it's their numbers. But right. if they
0: agree with the numbers, they're like, okay, well this fudge factor might be I off mean by the 10%. So
1: should be talking to the executive that owns the numbers to <laughs> uh, We've gone full circle. Check. <laughs>
0: or or outside CFOs I mean you can you don't actually have to use your CFOs if you're if you don't feel comfortable with it hire somebody off the side who can just double check your numbers and and have some defensible position like, Hey, I ran this by an outside, you know, CPA firm. And they say, yeah, that looks, I've seen looks great good.
1: success. So you're, we're all familiar with like the HR business partner. Um, some finance organizations have a finance business partner that is like, literally like we're, well, I'm going to help you with your PL and here's how we encode it and here. Like, well, let's make sure all these things. And it makes end of quarter and end of year very fast, very easy. Yeah. And if we start, I'm not saying CISOs deserve a concierge <laughs> service, but partnering through the most complicated and difficult parts of the annual cycle makes everyone better. And so if we think about how to partner again, back That's to partnering politics. across the business. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. <clears throat> All right. So let's talk about compliance a little bit. Oof. So <laughs> just a little bit, I don't want to spend like a ton of time here. So one of the coolest weirdest things I think that you said, uh, maybe this is a couple of years back now um, was, you know, everybody's going into like monitoring of their company's email and like trying to figure out if there's spam going in or viruses or whatever. Um, you know, Possibly totally noble reasons to be looking at some of these email, um, but then they see something that is also in the email that is like, "Oh, someone smoked a joint last weekend," or, you know, "someone got in a, a fist fight altercation over the weekend," or whatever. And now you've just been notified of an illegal act. What happens?
1: I'm not your HR business partner. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so that's fascinating and difficult. Like first, um, you know, keep your personal life off your work stuff. Like, sure. Time. Obviously. Um, <laughs> right. Like
0: once you, you, you become, hear that JC, you yeah. no, uh, no, right. no, dirty Again, deeds. Don't, don't, email, don't okay? cross the streams. <laughs> yep, you got it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, man, that's, that's so difficult because once you're aware of something that is a material, data point you're going to have a duty to act and so as a director or an officer inside of a company if you become aware of something you're going to have to pass that on to hr or to ethics or to uh, your compliance portal for an ethic like an ethics point type of thing and there's going to be workflows for that these things are increasingly difficult because your digital life you've got digital exhaust and the conversations the things that you're doing like these things cross and so how do you keep your life separate carry two cell phones Stay off your work computer.
0: Sound like, like a drug dealer here. Well, like listen, Obsc <laughs> doesn't work in reverse,
1: and the bottom line is your life. Let's let's take the empathetic approach. Think about the forensics or investigation, security operations person that now has to dig into your life on the work machine. They're literally reading your chats, the discussions that were off color, uh, the relational things that have happened. Um, the pictures or content they're going to be exposed to and the conversations they are going to have to have with internal legal and HR. And all, like that person, like that person's now a part of that and they've been dragged in against this. They didn't sign up for this.
0: I mean, this, this could be like, so there's different types of crime for obvious reasons, you know, the different, different levels, there's a
1: broad spectrum of what could be. Insecure. But
0: if someone, if someone, uh, you know, admitted to jaywalking, let's say, which is like, you know, the minimum, you know, sort of, Crime, I think we can all agree is barely sure. a crime. But sure. I mean it you know what is the duty of care? Like what am I now call nine one immediately. We got a, we got a jaywalker here. I'm not an attorney. <laughs> I don't
1: play one on podcasts. Um my, my my argument would be that if you become aware of something, uh the business is aware of something and how that gets routed, how that gets handled, and the decisions that the business will make about what to do with that is gonna go through the HR and the legal process and there's a wide range of subjectivity based upon the offense, the documentation or information around it, um, and whether or not they do anything about it. Maybe may be a conversation. It may be like they may, the company may have to distance itself from you. Like there's all kinds of things that play out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, my simple answer is like, please, please just keep the, all that apart.
0: But that puts a lot, of owner, uh, a lot of burden on the InfoSec team to have to monitor for all these things. Now they can choose to like only look for certain keywords. This is going to
1: be based upon policy, right? Yeah. What you've committed to in your corporate information security policy, privacy policy, and all these things, is going to determine whether you have a duty to police. So, like the Section 230 stuff, like what are you looking for? We're looking for you know data leaving the platform, like data loss prevention type of technologies. We're looking for anything that could be tied towards movement of malicious binaries or loss of intellectual property or customer list, all those sorts of things. And we have a duty to watch for those things. If we're inadvertently exposed to something, they're going to talk to so. The handler, the instant handler, is going to, like, the analyst is going to look at this. They're going to take it to their management. That's going to go to probably up to the CISO or to that person's manager. Like, I don't know. It depends on what you're, again, this is why you want documented runbooks for all this stuff. <laughs> you sign it off with legal and, by God, put that in the employee training so they're aware. Like, look, like, this This is how this goes. But they're not, I would argue, no analyst is digging through your life looking for any kind of dirt on everyone. We'd all be out of jobs. Oh,
0: no, 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 clearly, and there's no time for it. Sure. But- As you said, in the course of duty, if they happen across something like, oh, well, what you you admitted to going from point A to point B in a certain amount of time, that's not possible unless you sped like uh, I don't think uh, they're ever going to get there. That's a contrived example. But uh, anything that's going to roll
1: into, um, you know, insider trading or passing on stock tips or. Uh, like there's any population of things okay. where,
0: okay, those, I, I did give you a contrived example, sure. but what I don't think is a contrived example is, uh, I got into a physical altercation, like at home, like, like, uh, man, I slapped my wife last night and blah, 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 blah. I feel really bad about it or something. Yeah. You know, people just talking like amongst their friends, like, Oh, which I do. Should I apologize? What blah, 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 blah. Sure. That is absolutely a crime. yep Now what?
1: that's going to be defined by policy. It's going to be illegal and they're going to make decisions on what to do with that. I mean, like that's not a cyber, that's not a cyber I problem. I agree. Yeah. I agree.
0: But it started, <laughs> it's all started with cyber. Like we, we were trying to, we're, we're trying to find somebody trying to hack us or whatever, that's right. or, uh, or data leaving the platform, you know, egressing out. Yeah. And we ended up in so ingrained in people's personal lives, which, you know, you could sit back and say, well, of course he's a, he's a wife abuser. Of course he should go to jail. And, and we let's, should.
1: let's spin this differently. Okay. Um, we're at a point now where Zoom and other platforms are starting to add automatic transcription. Gong and some other things are starting to transcribe all of your calls, all of your video meetings, all these things. This is going to flow back into the platform. You come to email, to your CRM, to any number of things. And so this notion of a water cooler conversation, just a passing conversation being had between two innocent, unassuming people that is off the record... We don't have those those safety nets, those safe spaces anymore, mm-hmm. especially in the corporate context, like everything's on the record. And that's a terrifying concept. So it's, it's not even a opt-in exocortex where your brain and your communications and your life is outside of your head. It's now inside of the corporate ecosystem.
0: I mean, isn't there going to be some sort of backlash eventually, like... You can't have my thoughts out of my own head. You can't have stuff I do in my personal time at my personal residence. This digital frontier
1: is terrifying. It's completely terrifying. Completely. Privacy matters on so many levels. And so this is not just dealing with GDPR. This is privacy engineering and thinking from a corporate risk management. What do we want to know? What do we want to store? How are we going to store it? What are we going to do with it? And we have to ask those questions continually as the technologies evolve.
0: But this is a duty of care. I mean, this all stems from compliance.
1: Goes in your risk register raise it to the risk committee and have an open conversation. (sighs) Yeah. This is why the risk committee matters because you, you don't unilaterally want to make that decision.
0: True. I do not. (laughs) I want to make sure the other execs are aware
1: and we, we, we and that's what we're cultivating. Again, I go back to the orchestra conductor description of what a CISO is doing. We're cultivating these tensions and keeping the business current and aware of what we're worried about, what's in the risk register, how we're making our decisions on what is prioritized. And by the way, this new capability came on and, everything you've ever said in zoom since it was recorded has since been transcribed and it's all in writing and we have it all. How do you feel about that? And do we want to do something about that?
0: Even before the meeting started? Yes. Even when it was just you and your buddy, just like warming up before the thing.
1: Oops. Yeah. So again, work with the business, cultivate these committees, create safety for that conversation, put a process in the
0: ceremony around it. I I just find that whole thing. So gross. My friend, like, whoa. (laughs) Like I'm a big privacy advocate for many reasons, sure. but I also think it's just stifles creativity. If I can't have even an off the record conversation with a coworker, completely off the record.
1: Or you're having any conversation that you're an auditory processor and you're thinking through and trying to clarify your thoughts and something came out wrong but now it's on the record and you are now liable for what came out of your mouth. It's like,
0: I could kill that motherfucker. Yeah, but nah, whatever. And I'm I'm just, yeah, I'm hot right now. It's a terrifying universe. You said, and I quote, I could kill that motherfucker. This goes back to
1: the right of boom (laughs) conversation. Like what's going to be in writing, what's going to be discoverable. And uh, this goes back to your business retention periods. and all like, you need to have those conversations. This gets into technology, but it's actually a lot simpler. And a lot of the stuff is not terribly technical. It just needs raised and managed appropriately.
0: I'm done with compliance for now. <laughs> I've had God enough bless. of it. we going
1: to need something besides water if we're going to keep talking. Compliance. Yes.
0: Yes. Um, what I think is an equally interesting, but more fun to bag on is uh, vendor marketing. Um, so what are you, what are you seeing in terms of vendor marketing? Is it, is it, uh, is it selling stuff that actually exists Is it snake oil? How's it going? Like what, what's your impression of it?
1: I am so far from that right now. I don't know how to answer that question. What are
0: you talking about? You go to conferences.
1: I go to conferences. I don't go to conferences. Yeah, I go to conferences do. and I sit in meetings. <laughs> I talk to people. I handle you walk, incidents. You, I walk,
0: s- you walk by banners and accidentally happen to look at them, <laughs> or see them in the urinal. Yeah, I mean, like on the run, uh, or to, in your or in your room. <laughs> <laughs> okay,
1: for your for, for your for the for the folks watching this, um, there have been uh, there, there's a term when you go to large trade shows uh, the the vendors can opt into something where they're going to send some swag to your hotel room. And so you're sitting on a corporate hotel block tied to the conference, you'll get a custom key. So the key like says the you know, black hat or whatever, and they'll do room drops. And so like, look, here's the swag or here's a key. And if you come by and this key, unlocks something at our booth, you win a, not a new car, but whatever. But like they will
0: literally put it in your room. Or in your shower. In your year. actual yeah, shower. Yeah.
1: yeah, So it's like, it, like, it's a violation of my space. We're talking about high functioning Aspergery <laughs> types that feel some kind of way. And there's a Maslow violation. And it's dogs and cats sleeping together, the worst parts of the Bible. Um, what do I think about what's happening out there? Listen, um, we're in a strange economic chapter. There's a lot of pressure to cultivate leads. A big part of trade shows is about mindshare and about like pipeline development, creating opportunities that may turn into revenue. On some timeline, right? So you're like, let me scan your badge. Well, someone will follow up in a couple of weeks. Make sure you send me this information, whatever. What's happening out there in the space? I, I feel like there's a major evolution in the buying process. Um, the conversation used to run through the sign me up, send me this information. And there was a lot of selling that went down. We used to sell a lot to, yeah. you know, Gen X and whatever else. I think the next generation behind us, the millennials onward um, are buying through communities. So the community of trust where I need a thought partner, I'm trying to solve this problem. How's this work? How do we think about this? Okay, I'm learning how to do this, this. These folks have the solution. This is where I keep going for my answers. Like they're, they're, they think about the problem, right? Like they're, they're buying, not being sold to. Mm-hmm. And so the relationship between the vendor population and the service provider population and those who are buying, I think is going to evolve massively along this thread. And so rather than showing up and seeing a vendor pitch and a talk at a booth or a, a vendor space, coming by and sitting at a workshop saying, listen, I want to learn how to normalize logs. I want to learn how to use an LLM to look for a specific emergent patterns from this population log data. And I want to start implementing some of this in my company how do i do this and so going through a workshop and like develop your relationship with the vendor it's a buying process through learning and growth from a community path i think there's going to so be So you're an saying
0: there. they should send more spam because I get tons and tons and tons of spam. I like, think content
1: and community so development, wh- what are, in terms what of they education, I think it's going to move more towards I mean, empowered buying and empowering. How, do,
0: how do companies still think that spam works for high level executives? I mean, maybe it's that numbers. worked ten years ago. It's numbers. It so doesn't. So it doesn't work.
1: I, I don't disagree with you. <laughs> Uh, well, I th- think about how many folks that have called from, uh, uh, I don't know, the uh, Border Patrol or the FBI, like all these spam calls. Like, I'm with the Social Security Administration. Your number's been suspended. You're not going to fall for that. No. But they keep doing it. You know why? Well, but they don't know Because it am. still hits. No. Oh, yeah. Nobody knows who you are. But, but for the sake of argument, <laughs> they're doing it because you throw enough, something's going to stick, right? They're, they're casting a wide enough net. Eventually, someone's like... They're doing it because there's a financial incentive, an economic incentive that they know they're like, these are all business people, Robert. So if you think about it as an economic response, those people have bosses. Someone's paying for the infrastructure and the process and the data and all that, like they, they, they have bosses, and they work okay. in campaigns.
0: Okay. So this, I actually do agree that it works if I did more than just walk by their booth and they happen to grab my badge as I was walking by.
1: Okay. So, but there's
0: a lot, if, if I go through my mail, like I'm fairly good about printing this stuff. There's about 20 companies I've never even heard of in there. Sure. So clearly, it's not like they're you know, helping their brand identity and and nurturing me. Like I, I went through the first stage and I'm in the top of the funnel and I'm, they're just nurturing me or something. Sure, that all makes sense to me.
1: Sure, drip marketing and bring it along. Yeah. For the sake of argument, so there are folks that are forward leading. There's folks that are funded for forward leading. There's folks that are going for the, the classical, here's what we know works or here's what we've done, or let me recreate what I did. And in business, there's the... What have you done for me today? And there's also the what got you here won't get you there. And the market's evolving. Budget allocation's evolving. Well, I've got this brand new widget, but we're going to have to offset these other two budget line items you've lived on and it saved your bacon for the last decade. We're replacing it tomorrow, and here's what's new. That drip campaign isn't going to work. You're going to have to arrive at that. And so they're going to take you on a discovery journey. They're going to take you on a mind share evolution and joining a community and thinking through and helping you build your program and your approach and making sure that you're ready I think some of these so there's turnkey solutions and there's solutions where you've got to meet a certain threshold of maturity you need to be running on Okta you need to be on either G Suite or you know Azure we don't talk to anything else like you're proof on your customer you're building a community of those folks and over time they know that you're the solution for them because you've guided them on that journey that's the forward leaning forward thinking marketers I think I think so. I think. And you're still going to have companies like, listen, like right now I just need a marketing shaped human. Like, could you just go buy me a marketing (laughs) shaped human? I need, I need some CRM. I need some, I need some email. I need some lists. I need activities. Marketers are great at locking activities. And if you sit through a board presentation on here's what's happening in marketing, no one has a tighter pitch on what they've done and telling their story to the marketers because they market their marketing. And the drip campaign is very different than the community cultivation campaign. And so I think there's a huge evolution. And so I hate to say it's going to move towards influencer patterns, but.
0: I think it will. Or, or, or relationships anyway.
1: There's something there about building that influence relationship and investing in your buyers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah.
0: So you decided at one point, and I, I don't know that I ever thought this was a good idea. So um, now I'm curious, now that it's happened, you went back to school. I think I was your naysayer because I'm like, Trey, you've already You're, been a CISO. You've run black hat. Like, why, why are you doing this? Yeah. And it's never stopped you from really getting any job you wanted that, that I saw anyway. So yeah. Why?
1: Wow. I have to do business with some demons right here. <laughs> um, I had a monkey in my back for a very long time about not finishing my degree. Um, what you didn't probably know is that I had a half inch or more thick file folder that I carried with me as I moved back and forth across the country um, of offer letters and then retraction letters from HR. Cause I didn't have a degree and this really weighed on me. And so this isn't a gatekeeping thing. Like the same way we think about third party risk management and cyber. Do they have a SOC two? Okay. They're fine. Just get the next one, get the next one. Well, they have a degree. So they're clearly smart and have this all figured out. Like they're like, they're, they're functional adults. We get higher because they have a degree. They don't, they're not. And it really killed a number of opportunities. And what I found, um, it's kind of a funny thing. So through some reorgs and some disadvantageous events at, uh, Salesforce, I negotiated, uh, going to uh, business school and I did, uh, an executive ed program, um, following the footsteps of Caleb Sima, actually. Um, that was a seminal growth opportunity for me. It forced me to do business with a lot of things. Um, I didn't have an undergrad, so I couldn't do an MBA program. And so this was an amazing opportunity from a reputable school to go in, formalized things that you and I know about business strategy. I learned accounting and economics and a bunch of other like highly technical things that technologists don't care about. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was amazing. And I grew so much and it helped me mature and improve my understanding of the things where I'd blown it and I could retrospect and see like, no, I, I had a lot of growing to do there and I got a chance to do business for that in a highly structured way. And it, it was a similar experience for me. And coming out of that, I'm now an Ivy league alumni and, and yeah, I don't have an just undergrad
0: finish your degree though. I mean,
1: I, I literally, so I, I did this program with no degree. I came out, I did uh, their negotiation school and their corporate directorship certi- certification program. So I'm certificate of corporate director and all this stuff. And at the end of this, I'm, I'm an alumni. I'm a Harvard business school alumni. I don't have a degree. I have no degree.
0: Really? Uh, you never. Got I have a high degree?
1: school diploma. My dad signed. Cause I homeschooled. <laughs> <laughs> I have had to produce this for background <laughs> checks for a lot of companies. So this, I'm very sorry, but that's real. Does like, this
0: mean you have to go back to school?
1: <laughs> for, for, for high school
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> no to get, it, to get a, co- a college degree. I,
1: well, I get out of this and I'm, I'm retrospecting and realizing how much I've grown and it would be cool to finish my degree. And one of our case studies uh, in one of the programs we, we got into uh, an online school that, brings a lot of stuff forward. And so I transferred 89 undergrad credits into Southern Hampshire university. And I did my online degree as fast as I could. I'm talking like an 18 credit hour velocity to get in. So I could do a master's program at UT Austin. So I did have a master's in master of science and in information security and privacy, our domain. Um, but as a duty of service and care for the folks that I serve and I manage, why would I allow anyone to second guess me? Because I don't have a piece of paper that our program and the difficult trade-offs that my business has made in our risk committees and all these things, because I'm at the helm and I'm not qualified by an auditor or a government oversight. Okay. There's a thing there. This, I really,
0: I agree. Um, this is one thing I really like about you, by the way. Um, a lot of people would look at that as just an obstacle. That's just not worth overcoming. Like, ah, I mean, what's the point? like, I've already done it. I've already been a CISO. I've run com- black hat, blah, 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 blah. But you saw it as there is going to be nothing between me and the final thing I want, like nothing. I'm not going to let it be a problem. And that's really cool. Um, I, I'm seeing this theme more and more amongst extremely talented. And I don't mean talented. Like they, they had no, they had skill going into it. Talented. Like they have done the hard work and now they have talent from all of that hard work. Uh, and it seems like it's something like they're just never going, they know how hard it is. Uh, they've seen, they've looked over the, the precipice and they didn't give up. They're like, actually, I'm just going to do this really hard thing. I know it's going to be really, really hard. I know it's, it's probably stupid to even do it. Like there's almost no utility in doing it. I'm just not going to let it stop me.
1: I would underscore the amount of work and energy that goes into it from your support system for those folks. Right. I could not have done any of this stuff without my wife, without my friends supporting. Certainly kids, not me
0: family. supporting you. Cause I, t- I was telling <laughs> you like, what the hell are you doing, man? Like,
1: well, uh, let's pause and acknowledge <laughs> something. So like in an age of toxic masculinity, I think it's important there. There's an honor code amongst men where you give your friends hell. You just absolutely talk shit about your friends to their face, to their face. Yeah, and yeah, behind yeah. them, you root like hell and yeah, you yeah. do whatever you can to support them. Yeah, yeah. And for so many folks that have done the night school thing and gone through and pursued this stuff, There is a system of folks that fought for them, supported them, encouraged them. I'm going to get emotional, intense. And it was a journey. It was. And I grew a lot. I got a lot out of it. But, you know, it's so funny. At Rapid7, I spent a lot of time on stage. I'm a talented, I like to think I used to be a talented speaker. I did not spend nearly enough time cultivating my content, learning the craft of writing and composing content. I've read a lot of papers last five years, Robert. I can build content. I can write now. I learned to write. Um, There's a lot of things I'm bringing back that I've built fine edges on technical tools that are not technology oriented. And I have so much more respect for my peers across the C-suite and what they're doing. And I realize that's cute, but shut your mouth. You don't know what they're talking about. Like Mm -hmm. play to their strengths, park your insecurities over there and focus on where you create unique value. So you're all playing as a cohesive team side by side, facing the problem, fighting the fight. And I'm going to argue most CISOs aren't there. And so for me, it was doing, it was a journey doing business, making sure I have learned my craft, I've mastered my craft, or at least, you know, the best I poss- yeah. possibly can, the best I could bring forward. Right. But what a journey. And To phenomenal. date,
0: you're going to get better too. Oh,
1: we're we're all on a journey. And Never stop growing, but do business with that. Be real about it. I think, and I would argue the highest calling for security leaders is creating safety around vulnerable conversations. We're all on a journey. Nothing's perfect. But if we can be honest about
0: it, we can do business with it. Shout out to Vulnerable you. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Matt. So you are moving on uh, to a new role. Yes. I, I know we can't talk about what the role is exactly since you haven't started yet. Um,
1: <laughs> There's the uh, job you apply yeah. to, the job you interviewed for and the job you landed in. <laughs> yeah, for sure.
0: You just haven't actually stepped through the door yet. So yeah. um, what's the company and what's your role and what do you expect to do?
1: Uh, so I am so fired up to be starting at DeepWatch. I'm going to be their chief information security officer. Uh, we'll have a, uh, security operations and uh, the security organization for DeepWatch and the platforms as well as the IT organization rolling up and I'll be serving that team. Uh, I'll be partnering with the executive team and uh, they're, they're a detection response platform that is focused on resilience for the enterprise. Um, I haven't been through media training there so I don't <laughs> have all the sound bites but very pointedly, uh, they're partnered with companies, so like enterprise companies.
0: Are you going to get fired before you even start? <laughs> There's no telling what happens in your life, right? Um
1: but what I'm most excited about is that I guess there's several things. One is this company is killing it they're focused on the enterprise. And so the organization I work with and I serve is partnered with the largest enterprises out there. They are extending and guiding the foundational elements of their security monitoring organization and security response organization. So big companies we're a part of your team. We have to operate at that level, punch at that level and be that kind of partner. And we have the opportunity to expand it's, it's a huge market. Again, we, we, I mentioned this earlier, but when we look at that growth curve, one and a half to two trillion, half of that number in that growth curve half. Is, half is split between security operations like MSSPs and the security operations spaces at a ceiling value of 10% market penetration. There's so much market opportunity. And while I know it, it's great technology, the approach is viable, they're doing great work. I'm excited about the character and the integrity of the folks I'm working with. They've got a great team and I'm humbled to be joining. I'm fired up.
0: That's cool. Well, um, as a full bird CISO again, back in the vendor space though, not a vendor service provider. I'm a partner. Well, okay. Every CISO, every CISO is
1: marketing and selling, not a CISO out there that doesn't talk to customers, doesn't advocate the sales process or provide content to support it. So let's be honest about the CISO function. Some of them are sales engineers in chief, I'm not a vendor. I'm not selling technology. I work for a technology firm that has customers and I'm a part of their operations organization. So we're auditioning. You're you're going to be
0: doing, you're going to be shaking your moneymaker. I'm I'm not a piece of meat, Robert. (laughs) Yes, you are. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) All right. So let's talk about something fun for a minute. Um, You are a pilot. And so first of all, why did you decide to do that?
1: Oh, that's a great story. Uh, let me simplify in a couple things. My, my dad's first love was aviation. He loved aviation more than anything forever. And his last flight was, I think, two or three weeks before I was born. Hmm. And then he stopped flying. I don't know if it was risk management or financial investment or any of these other things, but he chose to not fly. So I grew up going to air shows and seeing airplanes. Dad's always talking about it. I knew I was going to get a spanking when I got the warning, you better straighten up and fly right. I knew I was going to get a spanking. I've crossed a line. Everything was an aviation reference in my house. <laughs> I think we wore out five VHS copies of Top Gun in my house.
0: Uh-huh. Grew up on it. what do you think of the new one out of curiosity?
1: I was terrified. It was gonna be terrible. I love it. Yeah,
0: it's it was phenomenal.
1: Pretty, pretty they, they did this great nod. It's like the Star Trek reboot. Like it honored. Yeah,
0: but they're gonna make another one. And I'm very,
1: I'm even more worried about the next one. <laughs> right. Let's, let's just keep. Yeah. All right. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. So, uh, the backstory is this, like I've always wanted to do this, um, I used to go to the Roach Coach taco truck with Jeremiah Grossman. Why is it uh, at Whitehead? We would go back to, there was this uh, ball, I guess it was a baseball field next to a school underneath Moffitt's airspace there in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And so it was always a game to see what kind of crazy tacos, like Langua or whatever. And a lot of times, military aircraft, big transports were doing circuit work, touch and goes in the in the pattern. And I'm like the meme looking over my shoulder. At something going, but I can't take my eyes off airplanes. I love airplanes. I see them everywhere. Um, and Jerry and I are going back and forth about something. I mean, like I love talking to Jerry. Like you, we're arguing endlessly, trying to clarify our thinking, mm-hmm. and it's a thought partnership. And that's Absolutely. one of think about, f- about some of my favorite people.
0: It, 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 that is actually, by the way, shout out to Jeremiah. This is the reason I really like him. He's incredibly mm-hmm. humble about knowledge he will absolutely take advice and clarifications and look for
1: and challenge his own convictions he will argue trying to understand yeah But a fine point on that. it's things. amazing it's i really beautiful. like i really yes. like that about him and folks like that make you better and you always grow absolutely um well another gift that jeremiah gave me um he's like what is with you in airplanes I'm like you know i have always loved airplanes my dad's first love i've not learned to fly then we're going back he's like why don't you learn to fly i'm like ah, i'm busy i guess i I had this chip on my shoulder. I'm trying to prove my value in my place because I don't have a degree. It's, it weighed on me, man. And a couple of weeks later, we're at some, I think it was a, a market marketing planning, content planning meeting in preparation for Black Hat. Jeremiah, like it was an all-day working session. And Jeremiah shows up like three hours late with this shit-eating grin on his face. Walks in, smiles at me, sits down. I'm like, what, what was that? What was that? Finally pull up and say, where the hell have you been and why are you smiling at me? Like, what is this? He's like, I just took my first flight lesson. The kid kicked me out of the nest and forced me to learn to fly. He's like, I'm going to get my ticket before you do. <laughs> All right, gloves are off. It's on. So I go to Palo Alto Airfield. I fly, he, he gives me some information. I go start doing it. He's like 20 hours or in, I don't know, 15, 20 hours into flying, like building his lessons. I solo it at like 11 hours. Mm-hmm. He has twice the hours I do. I solo and he just gives up. Like, But he put me in motion. And Jerry's also the guy that will love you enough as a brother to do things that will change your life and improve your life and force you to be a better version of yourself. And those are the folks that you have to surround yourself with. And Jeremiah did that for me. So how did I learn to fly? That was what pushed me out. So then I, I, I contact my mom, my mom and dad live here in Austin and I'm like, mom, I'm, I'm, I'm going to learn to fly. She's like, Oh, well, so patrol. They've got these materials. Let me sit. So she starts sending me flight training materials. So I'm doing all this stuff. I'm kind of homeschooling myself through the foundational ground school elements. I do all this stuff. And then at some point she just has to let slip to dad and learn to fly, and so dad and I start talking about this. And so I sit in pictures of my logbook, and he, we're literally. I call him after every flight, and okay, so when you went into the turn, you felt this, and here's what happened. All right, climbing turns here, and he could decompose everything I was doing. My dad just had a sixth sense about it. He'd since started flying after I moved out of the house. Thanks a lot, dad. I missed out <laughs> the whole thing. Um, But I learned to fly, and coming home. Uh, I think it was a a Thanksgiving. We got in, dad takes me to the airport. I sit down in the pilot, the left seat of the aircraft, my dad's airplane. I've never sat next to him and he was no longer my disciplinarian father. He was, he was my peer. He was my colleague. Uh, he was my friend. (laughs) It was awesome. Wow. It was awesome. And I grew so much through the process and I want to share that passion with folks. And my kids love it. But man, it, Jerry impacted me huge.
0: That's awesome, dude.
1: All right, I got to pull this together. <laughs> <laughs> I love flying. I love all of it.
0: So I know you've mentioned like flying with your daughter and her getting all excited about it. I mean, is it become, are you trying to like give it to your kids too? Or you, you think you want to help them learn how to do it themselves? Uh,
1: Education is indoctrination. So like it's, it's funny how children always follow monkey see, monkey do. And part of that is parents forcing kids to do this stuff, and we can make jokes about this endlessly. I have a passion for it, but my children have seen it. And I want to socialize it to them for the simple purpose that a lot of us go through in school and learn math as it's homework and it sucks. We're going to do what we have to do. And my hope and prayer is that my kids start to see where... My, my dad always said, algebra is you know tumbling in gymnastics and physics is where the numbers start to dance and they come to life. And aviation's where all those things in this created orderly universe we live in, all the structures and all the things come together and they dance. I can sit down and I can calculate based upon conditions where the clouds will start, where the thermals stop, how much runway I'm going to need. All these things feed into it and the numbers come to life. And so I don't want to force my kids to do anything. I don't take them kicking and screaming. If they want to go, I'm going to do everything in my power to take them. But they love it. And I want them to socialize to it and get comfortable with turbulence and all these things. And so if they want to do it, I want to, I want to, I want to share that with them, but That's it's cool. a passion. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. So where's
0: Trey in 10 years? <sighs> are you going to be sailing above the skies? Or are you, uh, uh, man?
1: Um, so my work works in commercial real estate and, um, I don't see myself. I don't know how many startups and fast moving tech companies I see ahead of me. So, um, we started our family later in life. We had a infertility journey that frankly, people don't talk about, talk to people about that. Don't struggle in silence. Um, We had a long journey. And so we started late when my kids graduate high school. Like I'm going to be in my sixties. I'll be 60. Like I'll be an old man. So 10 years from now, um, you know, my hope is to be doing like you have your job and you have your business. Our house business is going to be more on the financial, like the, commercial real estate side. Like that's where my wife works. It's where we're going to go. That's kind of what I think my exit from technology will look like. So I'll be doing some advisory, hopefully some sitting on some boards, doing some board level advisory. Did you do that those. while
0: you're flying? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> I may or may not have done a handful of calls while flying over the right cell phone towers. Uh, but yeah, it just doesn't work. Um, hopefully flying, but like my hope is not working at startup velocity, hopefully spending more time, you know, being soccer dad and softball dad and, mm-hmm school dad. I want to spend more time doing that. That's, that's where I hope to be. Um, one of my favorite things coming out of the private equity side was partnering with all these CISOs that are doing phenomenal work and need a thought partner that can push back and pressure test their thinking and help them arrive at better ways to land messaging. And I really enjoyed that. And so moving towards board level work, my hope is to be an advisor to the boards and to the operators to help connect that up. That's something that's lacking right now in the market. And so my hope is this next chapter, um, I'm, I'm excited about this next CISO run. I don't know how many were to your point. I don't think I could survive being a CISO for another 20 years. Um, well, I hope it's a transition. Towards I West mean, you're
0: a guy. There. You never know. Maybe you could. <laughs> I'll see Not you, you as as I see I in 20 years yeah. uh, if you're still doing Fair it. Fair enough. I mean, God bless you. All right, Trey. Well, this has been awesome. Um, where can people find you and DeepWatch and all that?
1: Uh, at Trey Ford. I'm out there. Not hard to find. So Twitter, LinkedIn.
0: F O R D. Trey T-R-E-Y-F-O-R-D. Yeah. Yep. Got it. Thank you, brother. Really appreciate it.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Robert. Yeah, of course. Cheers, brother.